races remain and Davizioso's title chances may well have hit a brick wall at Aragon. Welcome to Bank Live. Let's go! I went route one with this week's episode intro. Welcome to episode 32 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Looking back on the Aragon Grand Prix uh, at Motorland last weekend, a race dominated in the end by Marc Marquez, just as we all expected. Marquez taking a tight grip on the race for this year's MotoGP title with his fifth win of the season. Andrea De Vizioso and Ducati's hopes hitting that famous brick wall, as I mentioned, at Aragon last weekend as De Vizioso hemorrhaged uh, 16 points to Marc Marquez. We will talk all about the Grand Prix weekend at Aragon and where it leaves the race for the title with just the three flyaways and Valencia to go in this fantastic MotoGP season. Um, we'll still, let's take a look at all the other big stories from the Aragon Grand Prix as all six manufacturers showed their strength in a brilliant MotoGP race. Franco Morbidelli showed his strength in a physical battle with Matteo Pasini in Moto2 and John Mir pushed the boundaries and arguably crossed over them altogether on his way to victory in Moto3, a race win that has put him right on the brink of the world title. He is now just 20 points away from it. Um, Jonathan Ray is also on the brink of his own world title. He can clinch it this weekend. We'll look ahead to the Magni Corwell Superbike round, which takes place this very weekend, and indeed the penultimate weekend in the British Superbike season as they cross the ferry and head to the Netherlands for the Assen round. Uh, this weekend. Joining me to look ahead to all of that and look back on Aragon, it's Andre Harrison. Dre, it was another weekend where MotoGP was at its brilliant best. A brilliant exhibition of bike racing. I mean, I, I, I talked about it after the race. It was just ridiculously exciting uh, in terms of, like, Aragon was great from start to finish. And just, you know, there were so many stories up and down through the grid in all three classes this weekend um just you know dramatic exciting captivating you name it the bar probably fits um a, a great great um, weekend of, 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 of bike racing and i can't wait to break it all down yeah, we'll get into that in a moment first of all though the places you can find us starting on facebook facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter we are at motorsport underscore 101 uh, if you want to follow us personally at lewis sudderby 23 at harrison 101 hd and at Beck underscore Jane 83 for Rebecca James, who is on the plane to Australia. As you probably listen to this, we hope she enjoys her holiday. And boy, given her work schedule, Damn she her. has earned it. Um, we'll look to uh, hear from her again uh, in around a month's time. Um, other places you can find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, our website is motorsport101.net. And if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, it's patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. You can earn yourself early access to both this show and to Motorsport 101, which this week hits episode 105. And for the first time in the... Well, first time since episode 101, Dre was on it. Hey! I'm back! Homecoming! It, it, it's a good time. It's a good time indeed. Um, yes, I was back after a month on the on the shelf. Um, I, I gloriously returned to Motorsport 101 with actually very little motorsport to talk yeah. about of course um so yeah I, I i give you a warning in advance a lot of us not sticking to sports on this week's episode mm. given the recent nfl protests and the fact it spilled over into motorsport yet again with nascar declaring yeah we're gonna sack some people if you don't stand for the national anthem a fun time all around indeed a, a bright and chirpy episode for me to come back to of course. Check that out if you haven't already on SoundCloud and obviously where all good podcasts are available. 
hopefully I'll have we'll have brighter subjects on next week's show involving the Malaysian Grand Prix. Probably, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You can hear that Dre's confidence is an all-time high for that one for the uh, for the <laughs> Malaysia Grand Prix. I have to say, yeah. shout out to uh, to Formula One for uh, putting Vettel, Raikkonen, and Verstappen all in the same press conference earlier today, um, <laughs> which was hilarious. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, that will be all covered next week on uh, episode one oh six of Motorsport one hundred one. But let's crack on with episode thirty two of Bike Live first of all. And head to Motorland Aragon for the uh, Aragon Grand Prix, uh, a race weekend that Dre. We heading in, we all expected Mark Marquez to figure very f- prominently among the favourites. Um, but in true Mark Marquez fashion, he didn't necessarily go the direct route because for the second race weekend succession, um, he decided to end Q two in a gravel trap, which left him with a little bit of work to do. It did indeed. A, a second row start for Marquez for the second consecutive race. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he admitted it himself in qualifying afterwards in the, in the post-qualifying press that, uh, yeah, he pushed it a little bit too hard, the Mark Marquez life story. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, binned it um, on, on his second qualifying lap, um, and we, which gave us, to be fair, the very fun moment of Valentino Rossi being on pole position for about 10 seconds. So <laughs> thanks for that, Marquez. You're a true gentleman. Um, but, uh, yeah, he did. He, he made a bit of a meal of it pretty much all weekend. I mean, if he, the early periods of the race... You could tell he was pushing very, very hard. He did not look very comfortable out there at all. Yeah, well, we which barely is had the moment, didn't we, where he almost skittled Jorge Lorenzo out, where he went for an overtake on Valentino Rossi, who was running second in the Grand Prix, and he very nearly took two in one go and ended up falling right the way back to back to the back of the leading group again. I mean, he mm. made life difficult for himself, didn't he? And you, you could sense the, the impatience <laughs> growing as that race went on for, for Matt Marquez. You did. I mean, again, that that move. I mean, he gains about fifteen meters in breaking <laughs> distance. I was like, oh, he's got him. Uh, wait, 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 wait. That's Lorenzo's bike. Where is he going? There's a corner coming <laughs> up, Mark. Uh, luckily, as thing about that, I mean, not the first time Marquez has made a dog's dinner of the Aragon chicane, but um, yeah, it's he, one he of didn't those... disconnect Danny Pedrosa's uh, traction control this time, did he? Thank Christ. Um, that would have been a whole different conversation in the paddock if he curbed Rossi's traction control. We'd be at it again for Japan 2015 too. Um, but yeah, as you say, we mean, that was that just the definition of Marquez's weekend in a nutshell. Stupidly quick, as usual, but not as comfortable as he's normally been. Um, I mean, he was able to get it together in the second half of the race and find, you know, find the sweet spot for uh, where his bike was. But uh, not the most comfortable of um, of races for Marquez on this one, but enough to get the job done. Yeah, enough to get the job done because you, you really got the sense that once Valentino Rossi, for whatever reason, be it tires, be it physicality, started to fade in that race, and it became a two way fight at the front. Mm-hmm. You always got the sense, with all due respect to Jorge Lorenzo, who was leading for so long on the Ducati, you always got the sense that it was a case of when rather than if Mark Marquez would get the better of him. Yeah, I mean, it didn't help the commentators are basically like sealing Lorenzo's death warrant by the time he got to lap four. It's like, well, we all know as soon as you pass Jorge Lorenzo, he gets rattled. And it's like, Jorge Lorenzo has won 65 career Grand Prix. Please stop with this nonsense narrative that Lorenzo gets flustered. Although, you side don't... note, um, get well soon, Keith Hewan, but I did enjoy the, a, yes. Keith, a Keith Hewan-less MotoGP race. <laughs> I, did, I did enjoy the uh, Julian Ryder, Neil Hodgson commentary. <laughs> You shameless man. But uh, yes, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, I, can, I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, I, I like the rotating booth of Hodgson and Tozlin, I must say. So well done to them. Tozlin was great. Mm. Tozlin's pretty much great every time he's on TV, you to be really fair. You get but... the sense that those two, both Tozlin and Hodgson, were really going off on a tangent here, but forgive us. Like, mm. just, you really got the sense of how good they were at reading a race, like as the race yes. was going on, which you don't always get <laughs> on Coventry. Yeah, I mean, th- there's no substitute for experience. And again, we get like uh, Keith Hewn was a rider, but a different era. Hodson and Tozland were both racing bikes up till about 10 years ago. In Tozland's case, obviously, even less than that. So they, they're they a bit more modern, a bit more relevant for the modern viewer. So when it comes to these, you know, when it comes to bikes that are a lot closer to what we're seeing now compared to maybe from Hewn's time, where obviously you know, age and, and time comes into play a little bit. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like those two were, were excellent at being able to read races, dictate pace, get an idea of how comfortable a rider was. The little things that maybe other commentators, sorry, Keith, don't quite pick up on so much in the middle of their commentaries, maybe less time focusing on John McPhee, maybe a little more focusing <laughs> on, on, on who's where on the race. And again, just get an idea of things like body language and where he's pointing the bike and, where, like, like like the psychology of a race itself. I thought I thought Tozland and and um, Hodson were very very good at that. So credit to them. Um, I, I enjoyed the rotating commentary booth. Um, although as as mentioned, get well soon, Keith. Yeah, get well soon. <laughs> He's uh, most likely to be back uh, at Mateki in three weeks. But yeah, coming back to to the race that we watched on Sunday and Mark Marquez, who, as I say, just. He, he visibly looked quicker as he approached the back of Jorge Lorenzo in the second half mm. of that race and eventually got the better of him. Um, and we'll come on to uh, his teammate later on, Mark Marquez's teammate, that is, Danny Pedroso, who ended up finishing second and looked like he was gaining on Mark towards the end of that race until Mark sort of upped, upped it with a lap to go and responded. Um, but even no matter how expected that was and how predictable it was to see Mark Marquez win around Aragon, given it's a left-handed circuit, given that it's his home Grand Prix of the four Spanish rounds, this is the one nearest to Mark Marquez's home, um, and he's always gone well around there. No matter how predictable and how expected it was, it's no less important because there are races coming up that the likes of Andrea De Vizioso, Will the Viermark, particularly Mategi, given that it's a bit of a drag strip circuit, and Ducati will fancy their chances around there, so... Um, Mark Marquez, as he did last year, the races he's expected to win, it's still important that he does go out there and win them. And that's exactly what he did at Aragon. He had to maximise that. On a day when Davizioso was clearly struggling, Mark Marquez had to take full advantage of that and give full pain to Davizioso, which is exactly what he did. Exactly. This, this was a this was always going to be one of those rounds where Marquez had probably had it circled on his calendar as a must win. Like Aragon is one of Marquez's strongest tracks on paper. He won there very comfortably last year. And while it wasn't as comfortable this time around, the threat was a different bike in red compared to Davizioso. As we mentioned before we went on the air, Dovi does not have a strong track record around Aragon. He's not he's not been very good around there in recent years. And well, you know, this was going to be around where Marquez was probably going to do some damage to Dovi, and this is, and if this, if he wants to win this championship, which of course he does, this was going to be one of the key rounds to, to you know to basically send a body blow to Davizioso, and that's exactly what he's done. On a brief side note as well, Marquez's 60th Grand Prix victory at yeah. 24. God damn it. <laughs> what have I done with my life? Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's it's an interesting debate because um, I forget who made the point on, on Twitter this week. And, you know, it's it's still very early in Mark Marquez's career, but he's he's on target at the moment. There's no guarantee he's going to win it. But if he wins this season, that would be his sixth world title across all classes. He'd be just three behind Valentino Rossi, who's obviously 
the talk of the paddock in terms of his chase for number 10. Um, well, Mark Marquez could quite easily beat Rossi to 10, um, the way he's going at the moment. And what an incredible achievement that would be, given that he's got at least a decade, if not a decade there. If he goes to the same lengths and same longevity as Valentino Rossi, he's got another 14, 15 years to go yet, um, Mark yeah. Marquez, if he chooses. Um, mm-hmm. So it's an incredible record that he's already got by this early stage, and he's going to rip up the record books before he's finished if he continues at the rate he's going at the moment, Mark Marquez. Um, and there's no question, Dre, that I mean he was probably the favourite heading into this race in terms of the championship, even though he was level on points with the Bizio, so he was probably... The, uh, the betting favourite. Um, but now that he's got a 16-point lead and the form he's been on since the summer break indicates that this 16 points that Mark Marquez has in his pocket is going to take some hauling back. Yeah, this is gonna, this is going to be tricky. I mean, Marquez is now odds-on favourite to win the title. I think he's something like one to four now. It's like they, they, they think it, the bookies think it's as good as over, basically. It isn't, I'll say that much, no. because Ducati have got a good couple of rounds here where they tend to go well. But I will, I will, I will add that with a caveat of, well, Dovi, this might be a must-win uh, at Mategi coming up for Ducati because you know this, this, this is a round where again, as you say, it's a bit of a drag strip sort of round. It's basically a lot of straights and hairpins. That's what it is. Straights and hairpins where Ducati tend to go strong. Um, that wasn't the game plan last year, but then again, who won there last year? All oh, right, Marquez did. Whoops, um, this is a problem. And then he got Philip Island, another track where Marquez goes very yeah. strong. Marquez had that one won last year before he fell off. Yeah, and that was that was the first round after Marquez had won last year's title, and basically said, you know what, sod it, I'm going to go for it. Again. <laughs> I'm going to bring back okay. the old Mark Marquez. I'll bring back the old Marquez, and he probably fell off. Um, so. Yeah, like it's it's not promising for Marquez going forward, especially given Valencia the last round is a low grip circuit, and we all know that Honda last time they won the nose, Honda finished first and second. And so left handed circuit. Yeah, and anti clockwise as well, which which is even better because Marquez loves an anti clockwise circuit. So there's not a lot of opportunities left, I think, for Dovi to win. And we mentioned this before we went on the air as well. Valentino Rossi took probably something a better than we could on the show, and he said that you know, but to paraphrase him, Marquez has, has either won or had a very good chance of winning every single Grand Prix since the break. Honda has, has clearly made progress, especially yeah, in terms since of... Since the Bruno test, where they yeah. clearly seem to make a step forward, Mark Marquez has won at... Obviously, he won the race before that at Bruno, um, then was beaten on the final corner by Davizioso in Austria, um, was... <laughs> Beaten by, well, beaten by his own engine blowing up at Silverstone, where he might have won there. He then won at Misano in the wet and won at Aragon in the dry. Yeah, that's, he ticked pretty much every box, basically. He's, you know, again, Austria, he was unlucky not to have won. It was a dogfight and he just came out the loser in that one by a, by a, a hair's whip. But yeah, as you say, he's been competitive on all surfaces, in all conditions. Bruno was a flag-to-flag. We've had a dry win, a flag-to-flag win, a wet win. And a dogfight, he very nearly won as well. So uh, Marquez is is the man to beat and has been the man to beat since the Saxon ring. So when you weigh all that up, like I don't know where Toffee's going to make up the 16 points barring another crazy Marquez moment, maybe an incident, maybe a, a mechanical failure, or again, maybe Marquez pushes it a little bit too hard and bins it. But... He's only, done, he's only done that once this season, and that was at Argentina. Or, or again, a, that was a, a rare Marquez mistake. But uh, when, when Marquez's head screwed on, 
he's incredibly hard to beat for a championship. And Aragon was basically walking proof of that. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about Davizioso's race. He finished seventh in the Grand Prix. And um, let's let's be fair, the guys ahead of him weren't slow. There were a lot of strong guys he was being beaten by in that race. But from a very early point in that Grand Prix, Dre, the phrase, the dreaded phrase of damage limitation came up um, around Andre Davizioso's race. And as I was watching that race and as I was watching Vinales go past him, Pedroza go past him, Alicia Spargo went past him, Bautista nearly went past him. As that race was unfolding, I was watching that thinking, he's not quite limiting this as well as he probably could have done or probably needs to. Exactly, and it's it's, it's an even worse look. And I did call this a couple of weeks ago. What if Lorenzo starts to play spoiler? And this is exactly what Lorenzo is doing inadvertently. Um, Doffy finishing seventh. I mean, we mentioned this on the show before. Wait, if Doffy has a bad day, it's not third or fourth. It's six, seven, eight. And that is punishing. I mean, losing 16 points, that's the equivalent of a DNF third in terms of point swing. 16 points. And that is... He's a, he's a victim of how competitive MotoGP is now, isn't he? Because I think back to... 2015, the Lorenzo Rossi Championship, where Rossi didn't have the greatest of Aragons, did he? But he was very right. nearly second. If it wasn't for Danny Pedrosa riding like a man possessed, he'd have probably finished second. But a bad day these days, as you say, equals sixth, seventh, eighth, rather than third. Exactly, because in, until this year, MotoGP was only four bikes could win you a championship, at least for the last few years. Anyway, that's what it's been. Only four bikes can win a Grand Prix on, on any given day. I mean, last year, yeah, it was kind of a fluke for having nine nine different winners. Um, but for the most part, it was always the big four that was the main contenders. And this year was no different. Well, this is a lot different really, in terms of competitive in competitive battles. As you say, if Dovi's having a bad day, you can have guys like Alicia Spagaro in the mix. Alvaro Bautista's been close. Johan Zarco was a little bit off cover this weekend, but still has been in the top six on many, many occasions this season. Jonas Volga has as well. In MotoGP right now, there's about nine or ten bikes who can get into the top six on any given day. So someone's going to have bad days and miss out. It could be Yamaha. It could be someone like Petrucci, who's had multiple podiums this year in dry and wet conditions. So, yeah, as you say, it's the most competitive I think MotoGP has ever been. So if Ducati is having a bad day with how unique their bike is, they're really going to suffer. Mm, yeah, they are. And Davizioso really suffered uh, at the weekend. And, I mean, as Dre mentioned earlier on, history suggests that Andre Davizioso is, is not really a fan of Aragon. He's never, well, he's only ever had one podium in the MotoGP class around Aragon, and that was back in a year when half the grid was CRT bikes. Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't the strongest of fields compared to this year for Davizioso and Ducati. Um, but for the team and rider, this has never really been one of their stronger venues. So I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that Davizioso wasn't up the front. But as I say, limiting the damage he had to. If he's going to win a championship, he has to limit the damage a little bit better uh, than that. And um, as you've alluded to a moment ago, Dre, looking ahead to Mateki, where Ducati will really fancy their chances of laying a glove on Martin Marquez and Honda... Recent races have given us any, every indication that even if Ducati are going to be race winners at Mateki, there's no guarantee it's going to be Dovi. Exactly. I mean, this this was, by a country mile for me, the best that Jorge Lorenzo has looked on at Ducati since riding it. And, and that he was loves Mateki. He, he loves Mateki. He he loved our, he, he's, he was He's won multiple times in Aragon in the past. This was a shining example of that. He looked very comfortable out there. He's getting better by the race, Lorenzo. And as we as we found out earlier this season, Lorenzo is not playing team orders, so he is he's got no problem having Davizioso behind him. And well, 
this might be this might be like a, a sign of minor regression back to previous Chikati years where Dovi might be playing second fiddle to the guy with maybe a little bit more upside. But um, hopefully that's not that's not the case. But we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, I guess the best sort of compliment we can give Jorge Lorenzo about his race and you know, we're talking about a multiple world champion here so we, we shouldn't be too patronising of him because he's you know he's probably not going to be ever a, a guy that's happy with a third or even a close third but the best thing we could say about Jorge is for many of the races this season, this season that he's led because he led at Barcelona he led at Mugello he led at Austria he led at Ara- uh, Mizano, should I say, the race before in the wet. Um, but every time he'd lost the lead and been overtaken, there was a very sharp drop-off from Jorge where he just fell back down the field. But there was no drop-off this time. No, he was right there, competitive all the way through, start to finish. Um, no ifs, no buts. Was just only beaten by two very rapid Hondas, especially in the second half of that race when Pedrosa came calling. But, um, yeah, that was the most comfortable Lorenzo has looked in the dry and consistent, as he said, two, from flag to flag. Lorenzo's not really had a day like that since Haref. And, you know, again, maybe a sign of things to come because I think I think Jorge, since, since the Bruno test, has looked like a, a more confident rider. And, yeah, hopefully uh, a sign of things to come. Mm, yeah, and there's an interesting sort of comparison between the two Ducati riders um, in MCN this week where, believe it or not, Jorge Lorenzo has actually led more racing laps this year than Andrea Davizioso has, which is astonishing. Um, Lorenzo has led 40 laps over the course of this season, one more than Davizioso. The big difference, of course, in that being that Lorenzo's leading laps have tended to be at the start of a race, whereas Davizioso's have been at the end of a race where the points and the trophies are handed out. Um, and that's where Davizioso has taken this championship lead by striking towards the end of a race, as he did at Silverstone over Rossi and as he did in Barcelona. Um, over the Hondas and as he did over Vinales at Mugello, he, he tends to get stronger later in a race, whereas Lorenzo has faded a little bit, but he didn't do that um, at Aragon. And Davide Tardozzi has already said that he expects Jorge Lorenzo to be a title contender next season. Um, and if Ducati continue to make this progress, um, who could argue with him? Casey Stoner this week has been testing the GP18, um, the bike that Ducati will run next season and the bike that we'll see in public for the first time uh, after the final round at Valencia in the post-race test that we always get uh, at that circuit um, mm. so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of bike that is and if that's much more of a bike so suiting Jorge Lorenzo and his style um, and Ducati it, it's this stage I suppose where Ducati get proven right isn't it Dre because they've they've always said that this is going to be a long term project with Jorge Lorenzo it's not a one year project it's two years it's three years um, and they're prepared to give Jorge time and there's every indication at the moment that by the time next year comes around Jorge is going to be right where we expected him to be Indeed, which leads to another problem. Do you want two title contenders? Yes. Because what happens to Dovi then? Yeah, because like I said, like what happens to Dovi? Dovi has been the like you could make a very valid case. To, why are you building your team around Jorge Lorenzo when Dovi's taken a massive step forward this year and is now someone we consider him as one of the best riders on the planet? And you, so, you could probably argue as well that in, in previous years. Andre Davizioso is the kind of guy that would probably be more than happy to play the team role. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would rock the boat in that kind of scenario, but his stock has risen so much this year. He now considers himself a championship-level rider in MotoGP, where he perhaps didn't in previous years. So he probably well, he's probably in a position next year where if Ducati turns to him and say, we want you to support Jorge, Davizioso's stock is so high, he might just turn around and say no. When, when he won at Mugello, the garage gave him a stand innovation when he came back a week later. Yeah. This, that says it all to me. Like, like Ducati, 
they may have to take a lesson from Yamaha here and work out that maybe it's not for the best if you split your horses. Like, like Honda's never really had this problem because Marquez has been universally better than Pedrosa since he came to MotoGP. Um, you know, Yamaha has had this philosophy of two runners for the title well, almost as a luxury since the days of, you know, Rossi and Lorenzo. I mean, I mean it was certainly better than when Colin Edwards was around, where he, he and, you know, Ben Spees to a lesser degree as well, where they were never really title contenders. They were just, you know, very good riders on good machinery, but, you know, a good backup, but never a guy you'd expect to challenge for the big one. Ducati could have this problem. Like, like is when you've got Marquez around right now, who he's not really going to have his teammate as a constant threat. So he will get the lion's share of his team's available points. Yeah. Is splitting your horses the best way to go here? Because, I think the problem with, with Yamaha this year, I think why Maverick could ultimately not win this year's title could be down to the simple fact that they have two riders and they take points off each other. It's 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 the old McLaren problem when they had Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton there at the same time. It's like, well, they're both really good. Like if 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 it's a one team sport, you can get away with it, but it's clearly not in MotoGP right now. So. Well, one begs the question, do you really want two types of contenders in the same team? Mm, yeah, which is what they may well have next year if Davizioso continues on this level, which has been outstanding. Um, as I say, he's elevated himself in, in 2017, and heading into 2018, he will now consider himself a rider worthy of competing for a world championship in MotoGP, where I don't think any of us, and perhaps not even Davizioso, thought he was capable of this level um, going in. Um, to this season and hey it's still not over yet he still may head into 2018 as the number one with the number one on his bike so who knows um, it'll be very very difficult to talk Dovi down if he's got the number one on his Ducati next season won't it so that'll be that'll be an issue for Ducati to deal with uh, next season um, let's talk about the man that finished last uh, weekend's race in second place though and um, he started the race relatively poorly started on the second row in sixth place dropped back he was held up behind Maverick Vinales for a lot of the race and all of a sudden, in the second half of the race, much like Mazzano last year um, when he won, he just came on strong towards the end of the race, having started um, on uh, a harder um, tyre. He later wished he'd started on a medium and would have been able to compete up the front. Um, yeah. Came through towards the end to finish second. In essence, straight, it was peak Danny Pedrosa. Yeah, this, 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 is like, this race was the very definition of Danny Pedrosa. It's like, Danny, where is this like, yeah. the rest of the season? Like... If Danny rode like this throughout an entire... Why did we not see it until about half distance in the race? It was like, wait, that's Pedrosa up there. Yeah. Oh, wait, he's, like, he's just got... Pop wait, wait, guys, he's he's getting up to Lorenzo at a rapid pace yeah, here. Danny's we... suddenly setting fastest laps. It's like, uh-oh. Um, so someone pulled the pin on Pedrosa again. Good Pedrosa is here. Burn down the hatches. Um, yeah, like this is this is peak um, Pedrosa, and I don't, and I mean that in a good and a bad sense because if Pedrosa had this sort of form every weekend, he'd have won multiple world championships by now. But it's just you, with Pedrosa, it's like it's never, it's never more than a couple of rounds we get this out of Pedrosa here. He just looks ridiculous again. It's always too little, too late. Yeah, and it's always like just after the, the horse has left the gate. In this case, it's just like oh. It's like, oh, great, now you're here to shut the gate, Pedrosa. Thanks a bunch, man. Um, and, yeah, a brilliant ride from Pedrosa, second place. Maybe a little bit lacking in aggression to really make the moves where it counted. I think he would have had a better chance to have won the race if he'd found a way around Maverick and, and Lorenzo and Rossi a little bit quicker. But um, more on that later, because that was a bit of controversy regarding that between him and Rossi and their 
but kind of their revenge match, I should say, from the, <laughs> their race a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, overall, a brilliant ride from Danny. Again, that that, that knack he has of saving the tyres and then coming through in the second half of the race, where it, once he's got heat into the tyres, he's so good at that. And it's sometimes it just doesn't work. And, you know, Pedrosa made it work this time. And uh, I wish we'd got more, more, more than that out of Pedrosa these days. But, um, you know, we'll take it where we can get it. Mm, yeah, I called it slightly wrong earlier where I mentioned that Pedrosa had started on the hard say He had actually started on the medium, but he still had wished he'd started a step softer because it was an interesting sort of um, factor from that race in that the three men on the podium all started on different rear tyre compounds. Marquez had started on the hard and won on it. Lorenzo had started on the soft. And Pedroza on the medium finished in second between them. So proof that all three different compounds were viable in that Grand Prix and shows again what a great job Michelin have done um, this season. But you mentioned his overtake on Valentino Rossi and it, it was a key overtake to his race, just as key as the one on Maverick, which um, Pedroza admitted just took him way too long to get past. And had he got through a bit quicker, he might well have been able to make a bit more of a chase to his teammate later on in the race. But did you, did you see anything wrong with that? I mean... Valentino Rossi makes the point um, with the the incident between the two, if you want to call it that, on the back straight, that that's basically a normal racing line for a rider. When you come out of that back straight, you head left, um, and then you make your way back towards the right as you approach the final corner. That just hey. so happened that he went so far left that he almost put uh, Danny Pedrosa um, the other side of the tyre wall. Um, how did you view that? Did Valentino Rossi push it a little bit too far, or... Did Danny Pedrosa just simply put himself in a piece of racetrack where he was always going to get squeezed? Oh, here we go. See, Valentino Rossi lives in that grey area, doesn't he? Where it's just like, it's 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 such a borderline debatable decision that you can't really nail him down too hard. All I will say in response to this is that, Valentino, we ain't stupid. Like, like you knew Pedrosa was there. <laughs> like... Don't try and pretend like he knew he wasn't there. You knew exactly where Pedrosa was on that racetrack. And, you know, like, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to play naive and I'm not going to pretend like Rossi was naive to what was going on out there. Yes, you're right. You do drift to the left, but not that far left. Like, at that point, that's just, that's just inefficient. Um, he squeezed Pedrosa out. I think he definitely... And you know what? Pedrosa... To, to be fair to him, he's the sort of guy, right, that he would never throw another rider under the bus unless he had a damn good reason. Uh, he, like, have you ever seen Pedrosa throw shade at a rider? Ever? Not really. Like, not really. He's just not that sort of guy. So for me, if he's coming out and saying that Rossi squeezed him, he's probably got a valid case. Hmm. Um, yeah, Danny Pedrosa uh, said after the race, I cannot judge what he saw, but you know when you're getting overtaken. Um, and when you're alongside someone, when you try to give them room, I was on the white line, the handlebars were inches apart, and we were at 180 miles an hour. You don't need to force the issue at that speed because the margin for error is very small. Uh, Rossi, in true Valentino fashion, responded saying, if he isn't that happy, then maybe he should race alone because everyone else did the same to me. Exiting that corner, you always go to the left, and that was all I did. Maybe some of these riders think that they own the track. Um, so, <laughs> so to Valentino Rossi uh, playing the uh, the naive victim, um, but um, but yeah, it was it was borderline um, at best. And what we saw between the two, Danny Pedrosa got through in the end and um, finished um, in second place, ahead of Jorge Lorenzo in third. Um, the Yamahas were fourth and fifth, led by Maverick Reynales, only just. We'll talk about the uh, second of them in a moment. And in many ways, he was the more impressive of the two, even though he was the second of the factory Yamahas to the flag. Um, Maverick Reynales, Dre, finishing fourth. Um, it seems like such a long time ago that he put the Yamaha on pole position, second consecutive pole 
Um, but uh, he chose the harder rear tyre, and it became apparent within about a lap and a half that he'd made the wrong call. It's a mind-boggling decision, if you ask me, because he had a from what I said, yeah, this, this is what I was about to say. Like, from what I gathered, pretty much all weekend long, Maverick was excellent on on the soft tyre, and he was painfully slow on everything else. Yeah. So I do not understand why Maverick decided to run the harder compound for the race itself. Like, it almost sounds this... like he just bottled it and thought, do you know what? I'm not sure I'm going to make this last the distance. I'm going to go for the hard. But he made the soft work at Silverstone, yeah. so and which makes it even more mind-boggling. Yeah, like, it's almost like, yeah, like see... I, say, I think he just it seems like he just doubted himself. Yeah, I think that's what it was because like. The evidence suggests Maverick is faster on softer rubber. The, like the softer the rubber, Maverick seems to have more confidence when the tire is softer. Like the harder it goes, it seems the more Maverick suffers. And so for me, when I sit back and I, I look at this, I go, "What was Maverick thinking running the medium when he was only quick on soft tires all weekend long?" I do not understand that decision at all. No, that's, uh, that's I think a great line, by the way, in MCN, um, yeah. where they say. Um, in a race that saw soft, medium, and tire, hard tire finishers all finish on the podium, Vinales gambled on a hard rear he hadn't previously tried, and based on his Movistar Yamaha teammates' feedback, only to discover in the race that it didn't work for him. So he, he seemed to go based on, oh, I don't know, Valentino Rossi's advice. Oh, Jesus. How'd that work for you, it's... man? <laughs> <laughs> um... Maverick, your teammate's trying to win the championship. <laughs> Why would he be trying to help you? Like, I, I don't want to lay... Like, the man's 21 years of age. Rossi's, like, old enough to be his dad at this point. And I don't know if it's just, a, if it's just an us-millennial thing, but I think Maverick was a bit hopelessly naive to just suddenly take Valentino Rossi's advice and roll with it. Judgment, Maverick. It worked for you at Silverstone. It's like, like, dude, listen, to, like, look at your own results. Look at Silverstone. Like, like, you made the soft tire work beautifully, and you very nearly won that race. I do not understand why you suddenly think going harder is going to solve all your problems. No, Maverick, no. And it's cost you dearly on this one. Because it was amazing how sort of passive he was in those early stages. I mean, he was on pole position, and then... I mean, Valentino Rossi sort of pulled his pants down on halfway around the first lap, just drilled him into the bus stop section. And I was just astonished watching that race thing, just watching Mavericks fall back. And it was noticeable, wasn't it? Within two or three laps, we had that four-man breakaway of Lorenzo Rossi, um, Divizioso and Marquez. And Maverick was way back in the distance already. Yeah, he lost two seconds yeah, by the end it of that. Came to him. The tyre came to him towards the end of the race, but it was way too late. It was too late, and Maverick never looked like he was going to pass anybody. He, like, it, 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 like the ship had sailed at that point. Like, like he he lost for about three seconds by the end of lap three, and he never really got that time back. Uh, again, as you said, the tire came to him, but by that point, he was going at the same pace as everybody else, so it was all for naught, really. Um, and of course, when you're on a harder tire, you're not going to get as good a launch as well, which is, which is what we saw with Jorge Lorenzo. Well, and has been poor starts. Yeah, we know that we know that Yamaha is. You know, we all know that Lorenzo is probably the best starter in MotoGP history. He's so good at leading from the front, getting the whole shot, and then setting the metronome going. But he was on the soft tire to start with, so he's you know, that traction's probably worth half a meter off the line, and that can be critical, especially when you're, especially when Maverick is starting where the power is on the hardest compound of tire. Not a good combination, a recipe for disaster. 
for Maverick, and now he's more than a race off Marquez, and he's in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, it's in terms of the championship. I mean, we we're still talking about three potential championship contenders here, but surely twenty eight points before races to go is right on the limit, if not over the limit, of how far back Maverick Mias can realistically expect to come back from. Yeah, he's, he's, he's going to need a lot of help from here. Because, again, he's still got Dovi 12 points in front of him as well, which doesn't exactly help. Um, but, I mean, are you gonna get, uh, you'd going to get? you have to go some to take 28 points out of Marquez, who's been on fire since the summer break. Mm. Um, so the way it's going, I, like I'm, I'm halfway through penciling Maverick's name out of the title race and calling it a two-horse race from here on in between him and Dovi which is a weird thing to say in 2017, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, like, like, okay, Maverick challenging for the title is not a surprise. Dovi challenging for the title is a surprise. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's been a weird year, everybody, in case you, in case you, in case you weren't aware. But, um, yeah, I think Maverick's in big trouble. I, I think Maverick may have to run the table from here on in to realistically have a chance. Mm, yeah, and he only just beat his teammate at the weekend, who who we have to talk about. And, and as I mentioned uh, to Dre before we started recording, there are a lot of times, as I'm sure all of you listening to this will have noticed if you watch MotoGP regularly, that where Valentino Rossi tends to get praised, even when praise isn't necessarily worthy, um, because he's Valentino Rossi. Um, but this was one, this is one of those weekends where I think he deserved every little bit of praise he got, given that Dre, we, we can't stress this highly enough. Valentino Rossi had broken his tibia and fibula 23 days earlier. He then went on to qualify on the front row of the grid and finish fifth right on the back wheel of his teammate, Maverick Vinales. By any standard, that's an impressive weekend's work. And, um, you know, whatever flaws Valentino Rossi's character, whatever flaws he may have as a rider, that weekend just proved more than anything that, boy, this guy really wants it, doesn't he? Ridiculous. Superhuman. There is there is no other way to describe it. Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight years of age in his twentieth top-flight season in bike racing. That you know you could like again. I I off I, earlier this week I sat back and I thought, why is he doing this yeah, to himself? Like you're forty-two points off the top. You're probably not winning the championship at this point. Like, you could have easily just taken the rest of the year out to rest up and be fully fit for 2018, but he got back on a bike in three weeks. That is... That's impossible. <laughs> like, I think like, even Mike, Michael Vandermark was sat there thinking, yeah, fair play. <laughs> Michael, God, like, God bless Michael Vandermark, who is a better man than yeah. me for smiling through the whole thing, hopping in the BT Sport commentary booth at one point, and generally being an incredibly good sport about the whole situation, because I'd have been pissed yeah. if I was down there finding that Valentino Rossi's taken my seat yeah. for the weekend. It's and like, then what he, do you mean he's fit? Yeah, and then he watches <laughs> it put it on the front row, and he's kind of sat there thinking, do you know what, I can't really argue with this. No, it's like, you know what, the, the guy's clearly fine. Let him race. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, as I said, um, it's impossible. It, I've, I've never seen anything like it in, in bike racing. That, uh, as, as Lorenzo pointed out, he's not 16 anymore. He's a 38-year-old guy. Your body, you're like, you're, you're like, he's no longer in his prime in terms of peak physical fitness. And yet, there he is, recovering from a broken leg in three weeks. I've had to put a whopping great big titanium screw in there. Yeah, the guy was so, shuffling around the paddock on a walking stick. Yeah, like, <laughs> maybe there's a joke there somewhere about yeah. Rossi's age in a walking stick. Yeah. But you know, it's, 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 he's, he's a genius. There is no way this problem. I mean, only he could probably work out a way to, to adapt his riding style to you know, ride with as little pain as possible. And, you know, it's all about 
pain management when it comes to that point in time after a broken leg and he was able to make it work and yeah he faded a little bit in the second half of the race but to finish top five to qualify top three is remarkable and it it, it sums up Valentino Rossi the the motorcycle racer to a nutshell the guy will do anything to win for better or worse and this was Something I have to tip my hat and admire because that, like, that is a ridiculous amount of dedication and, you know, only physical but mental recuperation to be able to get your head strapped in and, you know, put your helmet back on and get on a bike three weeks after breaking your leg in two different places. That'll put an average person in a cast for three months, mm. let, let alone a guy coming back in three weeks and riding a motorcycle at 210 miles an hour. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't really know until. He went out there on the Friday morning, as we mentioned last week, whether he'd be fit enough to race. Because he rode a, a Yamaha Superbike and a, a Yamaha 600 around Mizano earlier that week. But that doesn't really give you much of an idea whether you're going to be able to race for 23 laps around Aragon on a MotoGP bike, does it? Um, but Valentino Rossi said himself during the race, doing 23 laps is physically difficult, even when you're very fit. So I suffered in the last laps. On my board and from the screens, I could see four people behind me. So I thought, fuck, if I give up now, I'll finish 10th. And I tried the maximum for the best result. I was tired at the end, but I never thought I could finish in the top five, let alone feeling so good. Um, so um, we have to take our hats off to Valentino Rossi for what he did at the weekend. It's very rare that uh, for a guy like him, that finishing fifth would be a result worthy of celebration. But given what he's gone through in the last three weeks, for him to achieve that was something special. <laughs> it was equally special what we saw from the man in sick, though, Dre, because... We've seen Ali Spargo and Aprilia up in that kind of position before. They were up there in Qatar earlier at the start of the season. But this was really the first time we've seen an Aprilia run with the leaders throughout a race and not go anywhere. They finished within seven seconds of the race winner, which was something quite special. Even if that's a good circuit for Aprilia and Aleish, that's some result. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a good track record there. I mean, his his, his first career podium finish in the top flight was there a few years ago. And, uh, and Aprilia were top ten with Bautista and Brado last year. Yeah, so yeah, pretty it goes well there. Alicia Spagaro has gone well there in the past on bad machinery. Shout out to that rain-affected Aragon race and that epic last like dogfight with Cal Crutchlow. Mm -hmm. Very entertaining. Mm -hmm. But yes, Alicia, like that was the best he's looked on a MotoGP bike maybe ever. That was him running in the leading group with other factory bikes, but you know, in front and behind. Um, a pretty little like they belonged, and, and uh, at the front for the first time, really, I can re I can remember maybe since Qatar earlier this year, um, where everyone was still kind of finding their feet because of obviously tricky conditions and you know the drama of Qatar in rain yeah, in the desert. Okay, but um, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where yeah, Alicia Spagaro super strong, pretty much all weekend long. I know it's a stronger, prettier track, but. By any measure, very, very impressive in Malaysia, and that's why he's leading that team right now. Say, yeah, it kind of justifies why he's getting that equipment and Sam Lowe's isn't, unfortunately. Given where Sam Lowe's was, he finished, Sorry, he finished last in that Grand Prix, last of those that made the finish. Um, so LH doing a cracking job, and um, we have to mention the other manufacturer that really impressed us as well, in KTM, who got Mika Calio straight through to Q2 um, on the Saturday. He was fifth quickest uh, in free practice. Um, mm. which was incredible. I mean, I, I woke up after Free Practice 3 had finished on Saturday morning, looked at the Free Practice times and thought, am I reading this right? Calio in fifth, with behind Marquez Pedrosa, Vinales, and uh, I think one of the Ducatis, Lorenzo, was fourth, and then came Calio. 
um, in fifth, which was which was astonishing. And um, he was beaten to the flag by his teammate, or one of his teammates, Paul Espargaro, who took tenth. And it's uh, the best compliment we can really give KTM, Dre, at the moment, is that it's no longer a surprise when we see a KTM in the top ten in a MotoGP race anymore. Absolutely. It is no longer a surprise. That team, we've said that before, I can only repeat myself, they've made incredible progress this season from... from you know, a bike that we all raised an eyebrow with you know, the trellis chassis and the, the, the development work. And, you know, they we, we thought, OK, this is promising. They've got two really good players, but it's Mick Callio that has gotten as much out of that bike as, as Paul Espargaro and Bradley Smith has. So on a personal level, Callio was fantastic all weekend long. Superb. Like the sort of performance that makes you think, hmm, maybe him with a full season might actually be worth a shot. Yeah. Um, but but the way the way it's going right now, I mean KTM are looking top ten worthy already. Yeah, I mean, and... when you think of where they were at the start of the season, where they were solidly off the back of the field, um, they've made an astonishing level of progress in two thirds of a season. Mm. Two thirds of a year, and they've got multiple top ten finishes, and, you know, multiple Q two appearances as well. Yeah, like they've made progress faster than Suzuki did when they came back two years prior. Like so that is an incredible. They started from further back. Yeah, they started from further back. They started from scratch basically because they they haven't they hadn't built a MotoGP prototype in years. So yeah, and they go you know they had a slightly better quality of rider when they first started, but gosh, that is an incredible amount of progress. And you know KTM are clearly throwing a shit ton of money at this to make this work, and it's it's effective that's for sure because. I mean, Paul Espargaro is proving that, yes, you can build a team around him because, I mean, we kind of had that proof at Tech 3 anyway because he was very good for two of the three years he was at Tech 3 as well. But it's a hell of a team. It's a hell of a unit. And that, that bike is going places very quickly indeed. And if someone like Mika Kalia, who, you know, is a solid rider, but someone we've never really put in the upper echelon of MotoGP quality guys is out there getting it in the top 10, and this may be a precursor for what you talk about later yeah. in the show. Well, we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk about it now because I was going—I was about to yeah. say. Um, cool. Imagine how quick mm. that bike will be with someone like Mark Marquez on it. Um, and mm. you think I'm asking that out of jest, but the rumors started to emerge, and from Julian Ryder, who mentioned it on commentary, basically rumors that have been circulated by people who should know, rather than people yeah. who would just send these around as some sort of you know in, in, in paddock joke. Mm. People who are in the know suggesting that. Red Bull, who've got a long-standing relationship with Mark Marquez, are prepared, along with KTM, to write a blank check to the reigning MotoGP world champion to get him on a KTM in 2019. Um, and Dre, I have to say, that is that to me is a lot more feasible than many perhaps would give that rumour credit for at first glance. Um, and first of all, let's look at it from Mark Marquez's point of view, who's currently <laughs> riding a Honda and doing pretty well on it. The current mm -hmm. rate of progress that KTM are making, by late 2018 can you see ktm being in a position where they could actually make a really convincing case to mark marquez to come and ride for them i'd say so if they can if they can get that bike to somewhere in the top six something like that given how more, much more competitive the sport has been in recent times if you're regularly running top six to eight like somewhere like where so let's say like somewhere where like tech three is at the moment where on a good day they can get in the top five mm. and challenge and challenge for podiums marquez i mean as a talent as a bike rider could be worth two or three temps on his own that could make the difference that could be enough that i think could be a pretty compelling case 
the question is, is that would Mark Marquez be willing to leave a Honda team that, let's be honest, has never really had things his way in recent times? I mean, he's like, like, like Marquez has had to often ride in spite of Honda, not yeah. because of Honda. I guess it comes uh, down to how much Mark Marquez cares about how he's perceived in MotoGP. And does he <laughs> have the same view that Jorge Lorenzo had on the verge of his shift to Ducati in terms of, I really want to win a MotoGP championship and take another manufacturer to the very top of MotoGP, which would be, I mean, the the scale of the challenge facing Marquez would be even stronger than the one facing Lorenzo at Ducati, you would say, because KTM have got no recent or no history at all in MotoGP um, as, as a winner, although they are a racing factory that exists to win. They have come to MotoGP KTM to win and do nothing else. Um, so they're, no, they're not coming to, to MotoGP just to sit around in the midfield. They, they intend to win. Um, and you get the feeling with KTM and obviously with the backing of Red Bull that they are prepared to spend whatever it takes to get there. Um, and that includes, you know, if they have to spend that money to get a ride like Mark Marquez on board, they'll do it. And I remember it brings me back to a comment that Cal Crutchlow made at Silverstone um, earlier this year. And it was on the Friday, I think it was, in, in his media debrief when he was asked about how well um, Paul had gone. Because Paul was up in the top 10 on the KTM. And, um, mm. and Cal came up with a sort of backhanded, a sort of throwaway comment where he just said, yeah, imagine what it'd be like with a good rider on it. Um, which, which, oh. which, yeah, exactly. That was our reaction. It was a sort of, oh, that's a bit of a shot at, at Paul and Bradley, isn't it? But, but I think, but I could see what he's meaning though, because I think that's probably what KTM are thinking. They're thinking this bike is going. This is top ten level with Paul Smargro, Mika Calio, and Bradley Smith on board. It. Just imagine if we have an alien on it. It's a very, very good point. I mean, if anything, Cal Crutchlow has been very complimentary of Mar- Marquez himself. He's always said that Marquez could win on anything. Yeah. And I remember him saying earlier that, you know, like Cal's, like Cal's, he, he openly admitted Mark's made him look silly on occasions before because he said, look, listen, our bikes are practically the friggin' same. I like my chassis a bit stiffer than Mark does on a personal level. Our bikes are practically identical. And yeah, Marquez is has destroyed Cal on many occasions on the same bike. So, like, Marquez as a rider could be worth something like half a second for on someone like Cal, who is still top 10 level quality for sure. So, yeah, like, maybe Cal, you know, is as unsavory as a comment that was. He's probably got a valid point in the sense that, hey, if you had an alien on there, someone that could give you two to three temps once he's acclimatized to it, that could be enough to turn that bike into, you know, a top six, maybe podium, uh, occasional podium level run like Suzuki was maybe last year and turn him into a, a bike that can win five or six races and win a title. Mm. Yeah, because Mika Calio, take qualifying on, on Saturday um, at Aragon. Mika Calio, who qualified 12th on the grid as a one-off wild card, was 0.8 of a second off pole position. Um, and you get the feeling that if Mark Marquez was on that same bike, you could, you could at the very, very least cut that gap in half. Um, and you're talking about Mark Marquez and that KTM, and that bike may well have been on the front row of the grid at Aragon last weekend, because um, that's how good Mark Marquez is. Um, and, and as I say, I think KTM can make a very compelling case to Mark Marquez in a year's time to, for him to jump on that bike. Um, and as I say, that then leaves Mark Marquez with the decision of, does he see it as, as a risk? And if he does, is it a risk worth taking? Um, because he's he's already, well, by the current stage, if we, if he wins this year's championship, he'll have already have won, what, four world championships in this class on a Honda? Um, and even Valentino Rossi reached a stage, at first at Honda and then at Yamaha, where he thought, do you know what? I want a new challenge. It, it depends on how, you know, on how Marquez perceives himself. Like you mentioned, it's happened, Marquez perceives himself. Is that, does he care does if he, he has a new challenge or not? 
does he care if he wants? Does, does he want a challenge? Is he just the sort of guy that wants to get on the bike he's given and just go for it? Is he is he thinking legacy? Is he thinking I could be the greatest bike rider this sport's ever seen? Like, is he does he does he does he see Valentino's record as something he wants to go after? Does it? Does it mean? The, the key thing about Valentino, that's probably the difference between him and any other else, is that Rossi was able to win on both the major juggernauts of MotoGP in having him win multiple titles on Yamahas and Hondas. Like, if Marquez could win on a second manufacturer, we, 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 we might have to start having serious conversations about whether Marquez is the greatest we've ever seen. To be honest with you, he could retire tomorrow and he's probably one of the greatest we've ever seen in this sport. Yeah. Because the, the guy has rewritten pretty much most of MotoGP's rule books and conventions and he's still only 24. And he's got all the time in the world to make the switch. So, you know, I mean, Lorenzo made a career-defining switch at age of 29. And he's five years older than Marquez. He's got all the time in the world to, to think about switching. I'm not sure if this is the one that says, yeah, go for it, do it. But, you know, it's it's certainly an interesting line of conversation yeah. to have. It's, and it's I think intriguing to be. And, and what a story it would be. I mean, we're, we're forecasting ahead a long way, but what a story that would be. Um, to see Mark Marquez trying to lead KTM to the front of MotoGP. Um, and as I say, this team is making rapid progress and um, it's going to be interesting this time next summer because Mark Marquez, his, con- his contract is up at Honda at the end of 2018. Um, mm-hmm. So KTM would be able to make him an offer to get him on th- off the- out of that team and without having to pay out his contract. So that will be a story we will no doubt revisit um, this time next year. Uh, the very fact we're talking about it just illustrates, illustrates how strong MotoGP is nowadays because all six manufacturers, Dre, got a bike into Q2. Uh, Honda, mm-hmm. Yamaha, Ducati, Aprilia, Suzuki, and KTM. And the six manufacturers, if you include Suzuki, were all within 20.6 seconds of the race winner. Iannone on the Suzuki was 12. Um, mm-hmm. And all five other manufacturers were ahead of him. Um, MotoGP, we've said this before, but MotoGP has never had it this good, has it? With all six manufacturers who were genuinely running in the top 10 of a MotoGP field on merit. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. The stat that Neil Morrison pointed out yesterday was it was the fifth time in 2017 this season that first the, to 15, so the point scoring positions were covered by 35 seconds or less. In the previous 840 Premier Clubs, you're going back That's to the ever- very first recognized season of Grand Prix Motorcycle Races in 1949. That had only happened five times. Yeah, <laughs> We've doubled the count of 35-second points covering finishes in the space of one season. So this is the most competitive MotoGP season ever. Undisputedly, by any measure, it is incredible what Dorna has done to bring every. It's, it's worked to perfection. It's brought the whole grid together. And even in a situation where seven or eight guys have had legitimate shots of winning races this year from pretty much every major team outside of Aprilia, and some of the real bottom feeders, but you've had guys like Alicia Spagaro in leading groups. You've had Ian Oney in the leading group at Qatar. You've had, obviously, you know, Zarco pretty much throw away a win and we challenged for another one. Petrucci could have had a couple of wins with the way the season's played out, you know, and we, I think we still had six different winners this season as well. So, yeah, like it, it's working beautifully. The sport has never looked brighter in terms of competitive balance and Dorna flipping the bill for the intermediate teams has has worked wonders to the point where now 
everybody is closer together and it's a beautiful thing because i've never seen a moto gp race quite like this one this past weekend where so many different guys on so many different machines were right up there challenging for, um, for, for, for big big points yeah it was brilliant donors deserve so much credit and the teams deserve credit as well because you can you can give these teams the the, the the right sort of conditions to work under to get themselves up the front but they've still got to work at it and make the improvements and as I say, when, mm-hmm. we, when we look at where KTM were just six months ago, and indeed we're a pretty aware a year and a half ago, they have made giant strides to get up to the front in MotoGP and make themselves competitive. No one's handed them that. They've worked away at it and improved their bikes um, to get up the front. And they all have, all of these teams have strong riders. Alicia Spargo is a class rider, as is Paul. Bradley Smith's had podiums in MotoGP. Suzuki have got a Grand Prix winner in, in you know, in MotoGP and a... Uh, um, a multiple Grand Prix winner across all classes in Rins as well and you know the, the, the class there is no I mean with the exception perhaps next year of Avintia with all great respects to Xavier Simeon and Tito Rabat there is no team that you would really look at and say yeah they're the, they're the low hanging fruit they're the weak team in MotoGP every team has strong uh, riders and strong personnel within it. I mean even take Rabat he's a Moto2 champion um, so he's not exactly a poor rider by any means. So the, the class from bottom to top is so stacked right now um, mm-hmm. and only getting stronger, which is brilliant uh, to see. Uh, the result from last weekend, then Marquez the winner from Pedroza. Uh, th- third Repsol Honda 1-2 of the season. Uh, Pedroza led one uh, back at Jerez earlier in the season. Of course, Mark led one at Bruno. Um, their third of the year. Jorge Lorenzo in third. Second podium of the year to add to the one he had at Jerez earlier this year. Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi on the Movistar Yamaha's fourth and fifth. Ahead of Alicia Spargo on the Aprilia in sixth. Davizioso seventh. Bautista eighth. Joan Zarco uh, on the uh, Tech 3 Yamaha in ninth. And Paula Spargo on the KTM tenth. Just ahead of one of his teammates in Mika Calio. Uh, Andrea Inoni for Suzuki twelfth. Then came Jack Miller, Scott Redding, and Tito Rabat. The point scorers were covered by 26 seconds in the end. Uh, with Jonas Folger 30 seconds off the winner. And only 16th. That would have got him on the verge of the top 10 last year in the same corresponding race. Um, and he had the likes of Rins, Barbara, Smith and Lowe's behind him. Championship standings then. Mark Marquez's lead is now 16 points with four races to go over Andrea Dovizioso. Maverick Vinales is 28th off the lead in third. Um, Danny Pedrosa has overtaken Valentino Rossi for fourth, having finished second at the weekend. Rossi's down to fifth, um, despite returning from injury. Joan Zarco is sixth, only 11 points ahead of Jorge Lorenzo now. is up to seventh, ahead of Danilo Petrucci and Cal Crutchlow. Uh, Crutchlow crashed out of the race last weekend. Jonas Volga is tenth on 80 four points. Right, on to Moto2, and we even had a good Moto2 race this weekend. It was an absolute thriller from start to finish, um, where Mattia Pasini and Franco Morbidelli went to war for our entertainment. Um, and Franco Morbidelli, as he's done on so many occasions this season, Dre, where he's had one of those disastrous races that has opened the championship up again, he's always tended to respond at the next race with a champions-level performance to win the Grand Prix. That's exactly what he did at Aragon. He's a bit special, isn't he? Yeah. Um, that was... Uh, we mentioned it before we went on the air that like you you watch that race and you look at Frankie Morbidelli and you go like 
the guy's got a seventh gear that no one else in Moto2 has got. And that might be the first time where Morbidelli's had to really fight for a win in a race that he's contended in. I mean, he, tr he tried a little bit too hard at Jaref when Alex Marquez was leading and he crashed on that occasion. But that was a proper dogfight Morbidelli had pretty much the whole way through. And I thought, at the start of that race, I thought, oh, he's, 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 he's going to go away again. He's, he's just going to win comfortably. But no, Matteo Pacini gave him a really big scare in that race. To, you know, tactically, you know, the, the tyres came into play. And like, I have to say, James Tozen's commentary on this race was brilliant. Talking about tyres, talking about temperature, the way it was going. And he, he, he summed it up very well for the audience at home in the sense of, again, like, Aragon, the Pacini predicted that the tires were going to fall off after about six laps or so. Turns out they didn't. They like they they they, they held on a little bit longer than they had hoped for, and as a result, we got a we got a really competitive race between between him and Pacini at the front. And Pacini had pulled out a ridiculous fifty four zero lap, but it would have put him on the front on the on the second row of the grid in qualifying to get himself up to Morbidelli and then it turned into a tactical fight until it came to tyre life. But I have to say, probably the best pass I've seen in all three classes this year for Morbidelli yeah, to you, pop... You've you, been forgiven for thinking leading up to that that, well, mm. Pacini probably wants this one a bit more than Frankie does. Um, given mm -hmm. that Pacini's not got a championship to fight for. Pacini bullies his way to the front on the final lap ahead of Morbidelli. And heading into the corkscrew, Dre, what does Frankie do? He pulls the switch back on the second half of the corkscrew going downhill. That is not a place where you no. pass people. That was um, like grapefruits, like grapefruits for nuts sort of yeah, moments. Pacini right essentially there. just had to jump out of his way. It was like, yep, nope, nope, you nope, have nope, nope, none of this. Um, <laughs> basically, Pacini was very mature about the situation by basically realizing what was about to happen and getting the hell up getting the hell up out of the way but um like i watched that race and i literally just went off i was i literally jumped out on my seat and went whoa when he, when he pulled that off at the, the, the corkscrew that was an unbelievable pass from frank basically a race winning overtake on the second half of the corkscrew absolutely phenomenal stuff from morbidelli to to essentially win the race off that move mm. stuff stunning stuff yeah he said after the race morbidelli nothing changed with my approach i raced as i always do giving the maximum i tried to push at the beginning and open up a gap but Pacini was closing fast um because it did look in the early stages if they were just letting franco have it didn't they uh, when he opened up yeah. the second and a half up the front um once Pacini closed fast he says i had a decision to make stay calm and ride for the championship or fight I kept fighting. Um, no kidding. Um, but you mentioned it was a race-winning move. And given how close this championship has been throughout the year, where it's to and fro between Franco and Thomas Lutti, it mm. might well prove to be a championship-winning move. Because that kind of move to win a race on the final lap is the mark of a champion, isn't it? Yeah, champion's performance. That was a race that Morbidelli did not need to win, given that Lutti was fourth and nowhere near him in terms of, pace, in terms of actual race pace. Lutti was a distant fourth and actually under a fair amount of pressure for that fourth place as the race went on but Luti was not on it this weekend he's, he's normally a bit quicker than this round Aragon so I was a bit disappointed in Luti's performance but yeah as you say this was not a race that Morbidelli had to win it was not a must win for Frankie he would have taken significant points um, and added to his added to his chance to do quite healthily by having him second and Morbidelli fourth that's an, that's an extra seven points and that would have been very useful indeed. But, yep, Morbidelli saw the gap. He went for it. He wanted the win, and he got it. And it's it's 
it's it's something I would I would never expect Thomas Luthi to pull that move. And remember, if you go back around to Misano, Luthi had a good chance to win that race and did not try to pull the pin on Dominique Agata, and that may come back to bite him because Morbidelli has got the extra shade of confidence and maybe that little bit more in terms of ability and, and confidence and gumption to say, I want this champion, maybe a little bit more than Thomas Luthi does. And he, again, he, he was able to make such a committed pass mm. at the corkscrew mm. to win the race. And as you say, that could be a title deciding overtake right there. Yeah, it was. It was a brilliant, brilliant move from Franco Morbidelli to win him the Grand Prix. It was an interesting old weekend for Matteo Pacini, actually, because his, his qualifying was uh, resembling more of a comedy show, to be honest, where he was having the mother of all paddies. Um, one that Louis Salom, um, watching down from above, would have been proud of because he, first of all, he got annoyed that Sandra Cortese, in his own view, blocked him in qualifying. He hadn't blocked him at all. He was riding about 50 metres up the road on his own qualifying lap. But anyway, let's not right. let that get in the way of a good story. Pacini was pretty pissed at that. Um, mm -hmm. On his second run, Pacini then was annoyed at a rider that was towing behind him. That rider was Sandro Cortese. Um, they then were seen riding alongside each other in pit lane about 10 minutes later, where Pacini was essentially gesturing to uh, Cortese in the way of saying, don't you do that again, Sandro. Um, stay away from me. Um, and then Pacini thought he'd had pole position, basically to sort of prove that all of that pain was worth it. And then Race Direction realised that they'd messed up by deleting the wrong lap of Miguel Oliveira, and Oliveira was handed pole again to the expense of Pacini. It was relegated back down to second place on the grid. Um, he then went on to, of course, lose the victory on the final lap of the race. But we haven't really talked about him much this season, Pacini, but... Given that this guy has been, for much of his career, a bit of a journeyman through the lower classes, and of course, <clears> even in MotoGP, he was never really a top guy, he's been one of the success stories of the season in any class. Absolutely. Like, the red, like Julian Ryder did a very good job of talking about this after the race in the media video, when they went a hard camera, was on Bassini second place. And the word he used was redemption. And it's, it's, it's very much been a redemption season for Matteo Bassini, where... You know, he's still like I, I will still not forget that last lap at Mugello in a hurry because that was a stunning final lap from Basile to to win the Grand Prix, win a home Grand Prix like that, and his first major win in what eight years. Yeah. So like you're right, Basile's been a journeyman for a long time, a guy that's been, had you know good results, but has never really been a, a a top tier guy in a series for quite a while, and this time around. You know, he's, he's, he's been so good the second half of the season where, you know, you know, five straight pole positions could have easily have been six here if the if the cards had fallen slightly differently. And, you know, if Miguel puts a wheel on, wheel off the track, it would have been six straight pole positions, which, which again, is a crazy achievement. Mm. And, you know... Yeah, they hadn't had a pole for 10 years prior to that. Yeah. And Miguel, like, he's fast. He's legitimately as fast as anyone in Moto2 this year. And we forget, this is a guy that's had to have an adapted bike because he, he's got nerve damage in one hand. He's not he's not got the full range of mobility that the average bike rider has got. And the fact he's, you know, 30, 32 years of age, he's, he's not had any major milestones ticked for several years. And yet he's managed to bounce back this year and looks like an elite rider in the class. It's, it's a stunning job. And he, like, he deserves a lot of praise for... Maybe you could, you could be forgiving people at that age to maybe, you know, start to wind it up a little bit in terms of your biking career, maybe look elsewhere, you know, try a different outlet. But he's stuck it out, Bassini, and he's now looking as good as anyone in Moto2 right now. And that is a hell of an achievement for a guy coming up to his mid-30s and in a class with so much exciting talent right now, you know, like 
Thomas Luti, like Frankie Morbidi, like Miguel Oliveira, which you'll get to next. And just the is, then there's those quality guys in there, and you're as good as them. It's it's a it's it's a great tip of the hat. So well done, Matteo Pasini, for again proving that he's as good as anyone right now on, on that intermediate 600 CC class because he's he's doing a tremendous job for the Italians team. Yeah, it just proves <laughs> that there's not necessarily a peak for a rider like a peak age for, for you to be at your best. As Valentino Rossi has proven as well as anyone in recent years that you know just because you're in your 30s doesn't mean you can't get better. Um, and Matteo Pissini has just raised his game if nothing else this year because um, even last year he was 11th in the championship had a couple of faults but this year in every race where he has stayed upright he's been in the top 5 because um, he had the first three races where he was finished in the 20s but he'd fallen off in all three of those he then had 4th and a 5th in the next two races one at Mugello um, he's had three podiums um, including his win at Mugello was disqualified from another at uh, Catalonia early season when he finished 2nd to Alex Marquez and then got thrown out um, so that would have left, lifted him even further up the championship had he had that result uh, not taken from him. Um, he'd be up ahead of Banyaya in fifth in the championship right now. Um, Absolutely. He's, he's had such a good season. And, um, yeah, what a what a success story for Pasini. He's had a, a terrific season. And let's hope he can continue that into next season. Because, of course, a number of the riders ahead of him in the championship are moving up, including the top two um, of Morbidelli and Lutu, who are both moving up to Mark BDS in MotoGP. You mentioned Oliveira, though, who finished third. And um, it was a tantalising one, wasn't it, for KTM? Because, of course, he put it on pole position, dropped back early on, and given another lap, he might well have had enough to um, make a play at trying to pass either Morbidelli or Pasini. But the finish line just came just a little bit too soon for him, and in the end, Oliveira had to settle for third. I'm in a shoot-your-shot sort of mood. I think you're looking at next year's Moto2 World Champion. I really do. I think Miguel Oliveira is really putting this together. A very smart performance from Miguel Oliveira. He could have easily overcooked his tyres and tried to run with the big two. Didn't quite happen. He let, he let the fight come to him. And I thought that was the right way of going about it. And as you say, if that race was one lap longer... I think Miguel would have had a real chance at his first set, in, intermediate class victory. But and KTM's. Again, yeah, on, on a KTM as well. It could have been KTM's first Moto2 victory as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Miguel, a very smart ride. And another solid podium finish from Miguel. He's, again, I'm glad people have started to realise now on the internet that Miguel is putting together a great... He's now third outright in the championship. And this is only his second year in the class his first year spearheading the ktm chassis and he's got it to a point where it can win races right out of the box that's very impressive from a guy that's only 22 years old and you know a, a guy that you know had a bit of a redundant first year on a on a calyx leopard team that wasn't really going anywhere fast um so yeah miguel Oliveira, very very impressive and he's, he seems to be again getting more consistent and stronger by the race He's up in the top three or four now pretty much every weekend. And once, you know, you get Morbidelli moving up and, you know, you've got Morbidelli moving up, you've got, you know, Luti moving up next year. Like, it could clear the decks for Miguel to really shine. With, I think he'll win a good few races next season. It's coming. It's, he's knocking on the door. It is certainly coming up for him. It's going to be a matter of when. Yeah, it might not just be the Intervetten team picking up the phone to Austria and saying, can we have a KTM for next season? Because Intervetten uh, have got those bikes. And, yeah, it's it, next season's Moto2 Championship, even without the, the top two from this year, is looking fantastic, isn't it? With Oliveira on a, on a KTM. Alex Marquez will be joined by Joanne Mir in Moto2 and Mark VDS. Um, you'll have the strong riders of Sam Lowe's and Hector Barbara dropping down um, from MotoGP to Moto2, both in strong teams. 
um, as well. Um, it's going to be a brilliant Moto2 class next season um, with so much quality right throughout it. And while we're on the to to topic of KTM, um, we have to mention the other rider. And while we're talking about um, bold predictions for next season, I'm going to go ahead and say that I think Brad Binder is going to be a race winner next season in Moto2 if he isn't already um, by the end of this season, if not a cha an outside championship contender. Because we, we can't stress this enough, Dre. This guy has had such an injury-ravaged first season uh, in Moto2, and yet Brad Binder has now been fifth in the last two races. He set the fastest lap last time out in Mizano, and he was only a handful of seconds off the race winner this weekend and right behind championship contender Thomas Lutti. The The improvement of Brad Binder, who, let's not forget, had qualified 20th on the grid, um, mm -hmm. is, is incredible. And just imagine what this guy could do if he was fully fit for an entire season. God, yeah, I, I don't envy what Binder's had to do as a rookie coming back from not only just the difficulties that any rookie would have from adapting to a new class and a new, more powerful motorcycle, but the fact the first half of his season was pretty much a write-off through injury um, and some nasty ones. I mean, having to get a plate remounted? Ugh, that sounds awful. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But, um, yeah, the fact he's come back and he's now a top-five level runner and on, on multiple occasions, he's... Get, again, looking more and more comfortable by the He's done it in the wet, and he's now done it in the dryer. He's finished in the top five. Um, again, like, I think Bin, like KTM has got a hell of a team right now. Binder and Oliveira going forward. That is a nice snag. And not, not only for that, but maybe for KTM's MotoGP rides in the future, you've got two incredibly talented young guys on on, on that team. That is, that is the sexy pick for 2018, that's for sure. I mean, mm. maybe, maybe it was last year having Morbidelli and Marquez, and the, like those seats are being replaced with, with, with Oliveira and Binder next year because those two are both extremely talented riders, and I, I think they're going to do great things on that KTM chassis next year. Yeah, I mean, he's... He's almost been the invisible man, I think, Brad Binder. I mean, he's he's 10th in the championship, and he missed three races. That's uh, incredible. In the season. It's incredible for a rookie. Um, I mean, you know, we've, got, we've got an incredible crop of rookies in Moto3 the, Moto this season because Jorge Navarro was sixth in the race as well, right behind Binder. Um, so he's having a great season, and he's staying with Grassini next year. But Brad Binder has had unbelievably, and you, you wouldn't notice this because we've not really seen much of him this year, but he's had seven top 10 results this year in Moto2 wow. and, he's only and he's only started 11 races um, so, so the, guy's, the guy's been incredible that ninth in Argentina was of course the race where his plate in his arm had come loose so he had to have it refitted <laughs> as you mentioned and he still finished ninth in that race since recovering he's then been 10th in Mugello 17th in Barcelona then he's gone 13th, 7th, 12th, 7th 9th, 5th, 5th um, that's that's just an incredible rate of progress, progression that Brad Binder's making and, and you're right when you talk about next season for KTM just look at the two riders they've got and look back at both of their Moto3 careers, Dre. For both of them, once they won their first Grand Prix, they won a shitload of them. Yeah, like, like once once the red mist came down, like once, like once the dam had gone down, they just started winning for fun. It was like the same with Miguel Oliveira. Like he got the first win and then all of a sudden he racked up five or six on the spin. Which, like in the intermediate and in the lightweight class back then, was had never really been seen before. Like that. At least not in several years. Oliveira was basically by a landslide, the best-looking rider in Moto3 at the time. And as you said, like, with Oliveira, they will, they will definitely come. I'm dead certain on that. Same with Binder. Like, once Binder found a little bit more, had the right guidance from 
from Akiyayo and had the right guys around him at KTM, he looked like he was on another level. He was on a different planet to everybody else in Moto3 uh, at, at one point. So they both they both had very similar lightweight class paths to get to this point. Um, so again, if they have the right guidance and the right mentoring, there is no limit to what those two can do. They are very talented indeed. Yeah, very, very strong team. And uh, keep an eye out for them, not just in the remainder of this season, but into next season uh, as well. Um, other riders have mentioned of note that we need to mention in Moto2. We haven't mentioned the uh, man who's second in the championship, Thomas Luti, who um, has never had the greatest of records, kind of like Davizioso around Aragon. Never been on the podium there um, in Moto2. Um, so fourth is as good as he's ever been around Aragon. Um, mm. But um, fourth wasn't really what Thomas Luti went to Aragon for, was it, Dre? And 21 points behind before races to go means that he now needs another of those Morbidelli hiccups to let him back in. Well, yeah, with four to go, it's out of Lutie's hands again now. That's the problem. He needs a more than any mistake at some point now. Like, Lutie can win the last four, and it might not be enough. And that is not a good sign for Lutie. And, you know, if it, if it was another wet race, Lutie might come alive again. He, like, he needs some sort of intervention now. I think realistically, have a chance. I just don't... I feel bad for saying this about Luke because it's, it's, it's the same old story with Thomas. He's not quite got enough. And it's a shame because this has been by a mile the best he's looked in Moto2 all season long. And he's done every year of Moto2 since his inception in 2010. And this is the strongest he's been by a mile. So many podiums, so many top five finishes where he's looked really consistent. And he's put together such a strong season and yet not quite enough because Frankie looks like a freak and that's the problem because Frankie's won eight Grand Prix out of 13 in Moto2 this season it's just it's such a shame because he's just oh he's right there he's he's, he's if Morbidelli was not in the league this year Luti would have probably wrapped this shit up by now like, like that's the reality of it he's been so good and he would have converted a lot of those second places into wins. It's just he's been so unlucky that Morbidelli has, again, found another level in his game this season. Because last year, he was the guy that was finishing second, third, second, third, everywhere. This year, he got the first win, and he's, well, not really looked back since. No, he's been incredible. I and mean, We feel sorry for Luti on this show, but not half as much as we feel sorry for Alex Marquez um, after oh. last weekend's Moto2 race. I mean, um, we, we shouldn't forget in amongst the superhuman feats of Valentino Rossi in the MotoGP race last weekend that these guys are actually human beings. And um, quite simply, with the pain that he's been through, the pain that he went through last weekend, Drake, come half distance, Alex Marquez quite simply tapped out. Yeah, there's there's no nice way to say it. He basically just tapped out. He 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 could take the pain no longer. Um, His leg went to sleep. He said, which means basically means he could only feel one leg, which is that, not not a safe way to ride around a Grand Prix track. That sounds awful. That sounds horrendous. Um, yeah, a, a, a nerve problem with Marquez still recovering from that awful high side. Yeah, a static nerve, which is in the hip, and you know that's again it moved down to so his leg could no longer feel one of his legs while riding around. He he he, he started the race strong, I've, and and I think um, Toza made a very strong point where he said, "Hey, maybe his aggression was because of just sheer frustration and not being able to get the best out of that bike while he was making so many aggressive moves on circuit. Maybe out of just sheer frustration." Um, but again, he, he, his pace dropped off rapidly. He was losing over a second a lap out there when the pain started to rack up. And again, the, the nerve damage had kicked in and he was starting to not feel his leg. I'm glad that Marquez did the, the mature, responsible thing to do where he said, OK, 
yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this bike in. It's not safe for me or my fellow competitors. Let's just pull this off and we'll call it a day. And again, I know we have not talked about it. I know Marcel Schrotter was dealing with mm. some with, with similar, and you, you could see the cutaway shot as Morbidelli was about to win. You could see Marcel Schrotter who had pulled in um, due to pain as well, and the, the look on Schrotter's face said everything. He was in agony. Um, uh, once he was back in the paddock, and it, it, let's like I know Valentino Rossi has pulled off this miraculous recovery, but let's not forget what some of these riders have to go through on on, on a race to race basis to deal with pain management and to deal with niggling injuries that yeah, go they're on. They're going above and beyond the Call of Duty, aren't they? Oh, to to, yeah. to try and to try and get a result, to try and just do what they love doing. And, and yeah, Alex Marquez just just could mm. not stand that pain anymore. Nor could Schrotter, and both of them had to pull out midway through uh, the race. We hope to see them both back fit again. Um, with three weeks off between now and Mategi, the first of the three Asia-Pacific rounds. Uh, the Moto2 result then, Morbidelli the winner by a tenth of a second from Pacini, with Oliveira just half second off the win in third. Thomas Lutti fourth, four seconds off, with Brad Binder right behind him at the end. Jorge Navarro sixth, so that is two rookies in the top six, with Navarro right behind uh, Brad Binder. Simone Corsi on the speed up seventh, ahead of Takaki Nakagami. Sandro Cortesi, who was the first of the suitors home in ninth, and Peko Banyaya who had a quiet weekend by the high standards he set himself this season, in 10th, third rookie home. Um, he's usually the first of them, isn't he? Modo 2 Championship standings then. Morbidelli leads it by 21 points for t from Thomas Lutti, with Oliveira now up to third, ahead of Alex Marquez um, by two points. Banyaya is in fifth, just six points ahead of Pacini now in sixth. Nakagami seventh, ahead of Corsi. Dominic Eger to ninth, and Brad Binder, as I mentioned earlier on, is now into the top 10 in the World Championship, which is some feat for a rider who has missed three races this season. Uh, now, we finished with Moto3, and just to explain why this Moto3 race was a 13-lap sprint, um, for those that didn't follow the uh, events of early Sunday morning, um, because I got up for work thinking, oh, you know what, great, just before I go to work, I'll be able to watch some of the warm-ups before I go to work. And all I saw was a circuit surrounded by fog. Um, because the mist okay. descended around Aragon, um, which meant that it didn't actually clear until around 20 minutes or so before the Moto3 race was scheduled to start, um, which meant that they had to squeeze the three warm-ups in, which were all shortened to 15 minutes rather than 20, and then to ensure that the two lower classes were finished in time for MotoGP to start on time, Moto3's race had to be shortened to a 13-lap sprint, which didn't really deny us a great race. We still had the usual group fight that we often get in Moto3 and an exciting final lap, which led to a rather familiar result, a victory for Joan Mir. But would it be fair, Dre, or would it be polite to describe this one as a controversial victory? Yes, I would definitely go as far as to say that because... Let's be real here. We know Moto. We know that you know race direction tends to sit on their hands when it comes to these sort of critical decisions. When it comes to you know last lap controversies, we've seen our fair share of them in MotoGP. Still not salty about RF that one time, but um, yeah, it, we've seen plenty of them. And this time round, we got another controversial finish in Moto3. Aragon, as you know, as we all know, has a one-kilometer-long back straight heading towards the final two corners and. Well, Joanne Mira basically turned the race into an episode of Ski Sunday. Um, basically, multiple weaves, I'd say about four or five of them down the back straight. Um, yeah, like it, it got to a point where he very nearly collided with um, Fabio Giantonino behind him there. Um, in, in that last lap fight for the win down the back straight. Again, Mir trying to dodge the slipstream. 
Um, yeah, may or may not have been worth a punishment. We'll, uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but uh, it certainly ticked the other two guys on the podium off regarding that. <laughs> yeah, it, well, yeah, let's get let's get straight to it. The punishment that he was given, because Race Direction did deem it worthy of a punishment, because they have given Joan Mir a punishment. They have given him a six-place grid drop for the next race at Mategi, <laughs> um, the race where, he incidentally, he can win the World Championship. Um, now, for, once you assert, Andre, that he's committed dangerous riding, which is the penalty, which is the punishment or the, the offence they deem he's committed, dangerous riding uh, down the back straight, and that dangerous riding won him the Grand Prix, how then is he allowed to keep that victory? Because race direction do not like changing race results after the fact. There, there is no other way to say it. Race Direction would rather let the racers race. Now, I know a lot of hardcore motorsport fans are, are, are very keen on that. Uh, they, they love that that mantra and that way of thinking. But I can't argue with anybody who says that was, that was worthy of a punishment, especially one greater than the sixth-place grid drop that Mir actually got. Because, let's be frank, six places is nothing in Moto3. It's, it's, it's nothing in Moto3 because as long as you get yourself in the sort of top dozen at the start of a race, you're in the group and you can win from there, as Mir has proven, as Canet proved at Silverstone when he won from 16th on the grid. Um, mm-hmm. So qualifying is as, as it's ironic, given that they faff around so much in Moto3 to try and get a toe, but qualifying is as in, in, insignificant in Moto3 as it is in any of the three classes because you can win from midway down the field. Um, but... It, it's not a deterrent either, is it? Because no. if you're if you if a rider is told, and I'm sorry, when it comes to if you decide that the offence is dangerous riding, you have to stamp down on it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And right. if a rider knows that by riding in such a manner on the final lap of a race, he will be allowed to keep his race victory, and all he'll have is a grid drop at the next race, he'll take the grid drop at the next race if it means he wins the race. Absolutely, like it's that's a price worth paying. Absolutely, no question. Absolutely, um, six places is nothing. That's barely even a penalty by by any measure. That's nothing. So the way I'm looking at it right now, like he'll t- like you're absolutely right. Like a rider will take that punishment if it means getting a win because 25 points is worth more than a six place penalty for a following race. It was if you're gonna punish me for that. You like you have to punish him harder than that because I know like race direction struggled with this sort of thing because I mean they scrapped the penalty point system for this season which let's be honest didn't really work. Um, so I think you have, you either got to do one of two things. You either got to let that sort of shit go, which is what I thought race direction was going to do. If I'm being completely honest, because that's what that's their, that's what they normally do. That's, that's their reputation. They don't like to punish riders for. For those sort of those sorts of um, dangerous sorts of riding in those questionable moments, those grey areas, they don't like. They don't like that one. Um, however, if you've acknowledged he's rode dangerously and he's inherited a victory which he probably would not have gotten, given the nature of Aragon and the tra- and the race itself, they probably should have demoted him to third. Mm. Just just the point I'd, I'd like to make that they probably should have giving him a sufficient enough time penalty to say, yeah, we're going to drop you to third. If Valentino Rossi can get 0.4 of a second, sorry, sorry, I think it was Johan Zarco that got the 0.4 of a second. No, it was Rossi and Cota that yeah, got the was, point. Yeah. He got, got the point straight four. lining a corner when Zarco sort of had him off. 
if that is a feasible thing in the rules, there's no reason why they couldn't have done that to Joanne Mir. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? I mean, and I, and I had to go as far as to say, the only reason they didn't just straight, straight up demote him down the result was because it was the race victory we were talking about. And of course, we'd had delays throughout, throughout the day, and I'm sure they didn't want to have to delay the podium ceremony to try and um, alter the result and you know, inflict a post-race penalty and knock Joan Mir down the result. Um, but I'm thinking of previous races, thinking of Moto3 last year at Assen, where they weren't afraid to change the result after the race, where they swapped second and third around. Um, it was Mino and I forget the rider who was promoted ahead of him, but Mino was the guy who got a penalty for, mm -hmm. um, for running off the track on the final lap and was dropped from second to third. They did that then. We saw Danilo Petrucci disqualified, wasn't he, from the race for a dangerous move at Austria last year when he took Eugene Laverty off at the final corner. Um, that's another one that springs to mind. Um, so they're not afraid of changing result afterwards, but they clearly didn't want to have to change the race winner. Uh, because that's not a good look. You want the race winner to take the checker flag on track, and you know that's that's much better for TV, right? Um, you know, not as not as great as seeing a race winner, but literally like in qualifying in Moto2, where they had to basically wheel the bike back into Part Ferme because hey, no, you're on pole, um, and change it that way. Um, and you know, I'm convinced if Joan Mir hadn't won that race, and that was a battle for fifth, sixth, and seventh, they would have straight up knocked him down the field and given him a penalty. Absolutely. I just think I just think they shirked it. I just think they, they, they bottled it and didn't want to inflict the post-race penalty and change the race winner. Um, what has to be said, though, Dre, whatever we say about John Mears riding, approaching the final corner, um, we still have to give this guy an enormous amount of praise. Eighth win of the year uh, in Moto3, which is, albeit, a very short history of the class since 2012. It is a Moto3 record. Um, Brad Binder, of course, had won seven last year. Um, but his racecraft leading up to that was nothing short of sensational. He started the last lap in fourth, and by the time he exited to turn one, he was in the lead. <laughs> Again, he's a bit special, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah, like, I have to say, as much as, you know, it was dangerous at the end, it was a shrewd bit of racecraft because, again... I was thinking he was going to get away with that. I don't blame him for doing it because, let's be honest, race direction sits on their hands. But and playing devil's advocate, the the champions do tend to push the boundaries further than others, don't they? Of course they do, and that's like the the nature, the nature of bike racing, the nature of competition, the nature of how the sport is governed, and probably opens the door to that sort of thing most likely. So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're going to open that door. But even beforehand, Mir was fantastic. Again, you could always see he was right there waiting to pounce. And then the final lap pulls the pin. Like I said to my brother, as I was watching this race with him, I said, this is the sort of race where you don't want to be leading going down the home straight. Mir found a way to make it work. It was like he practically won a race that was practically impossible to win for half a lap out. That's a very impressive feat. And it just shows that Mir's racecraft is completely untouchable in Moto3 right now. He's got an extra level of nous. Reminds me a lot of Miguel Rivera. Always knew he was in the right place at the right time in Moto3. And I think Mir is very similar. He knows exactly what he's doing in those sorts of scenarios. And Mir, again, was able to make it work. And that's how he's now won 8 out of 13, which is probably even more impressive in Moto3 given how... Um, in unpredictable it is compared to Moto2 where like, Mir's won 8 out of 13 with that class behind him yeah. incredible absolutely <laughs> outstanding uh, from Joao Mir and yeah it was it, the, way, the, the way the race panned out even though it was only 13 laps it, it, it had a bit of a pattern to it where the three men that tended to do most of the running 
um, were Jorge Martin and Fabio Di Gian Antonio on the Grassini Hondas and Enea Bastianini on the Estrella Galicia Honda. Those three were pretty much the top three in one order or another for the first 12 of those 13 laps, um, with Joan Mir tending to sit in fourth or fifth. Um, and then it was almost a case of he saw the last lap and thought, right, it's go time. Um, and you, yeah. you had that image, that, that visual of Martin, Di Gian Antonio and Bastianini all having a battle on the brakes, going into turn one, and then like a hot knife through butter, Jean Mir just sides right through the middle of them and takes the lead from the three of them at turn one, and then they don't see him again. They don't pass him again for the rest of the final lap. It was just an incredible display of Jean Mir just pulling the pin with a lap to go and deciding it's time to go. Um, I, I remember back in the year where he won the Moto3 title, Maverick Vinales would often have... Uh, a pit board signal which would say go on it when they decided it was time for him to up the pace and drop the group and he would do oh, it yeah. and he'd do it he just <laughs> dropped them and it's almost like John Mir's got one of those where when he decides it's time to go he goes um, and and like he did in Austria where he just dropped them halfway through um, and he, he's, he's like like Morbidelli in Moto 2 as you mentioned earlier he has this extra gear that he can go to in Moto 3 that just no one else quite frankly can go to um, which has set him apart as the dominant champion elect of this class and a top two finish at Mategi next time out will win uh Jean Mir the 2017 world championship um which even with a sixth place grid drop hanging over his head he's likely to do um in a couple of weeks time so we will look out for that uh, in a couple of weeks um the two Italians then that completed the podium with Mir were left understandably disappointed given that Mir was able to keep his victory um and you can understand them being disappointed Dre not least not just because uh, of the fact that Bash, uh, Fabio Di Giannantonio had to settle for second again, but it meant that his wait for a first victory still goes on. <laughs> oh, DZ, 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 you are so close. That was, uh, well, was what, a bike length separating him in that yeah, first and win? Yeah, he didn't have the same post-race reaction as he did when Andrea Migno pipped him at Mugello. No, he was, it, was a, it was a bit more no unsafe. No back-slapping this time. No backslapping. I reckon a lot of Italian fiend curse words were, I reckon, were uttered as, as Mir went over the line because DG was evidently pissed with, with, with Mir after that race. Um, very stereotypical hand gestures, um, for, for lack of a better term, after, after the race where Fabio confronted Mir after the race, and he, he seemed to have gotten over it by the time the podium had, had rolled around again. But you could you could imagine he was quite rightly frustrated at the situation. Because he he had rode a he had rode another blinder and just very very unlucky would have had would have been in prime spot to take the win into the final corner if it wasn't for what was deemed illegal riding from Joanne Mir. So you can't blame him for being too. Because if, if there was a steeper punishment, Gigi would have in inherited the win. So yeah, it's a shame for for them. But you know, another great result for him and his teammate uh, as, as well. Both of them are very strong. And hey, they're both confirmed for next year. So congratulations to the pair of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> strong team that heading into next year for uh, Grassini. But yeah, that is the eighth podium um, for Fabio Di Gian Antonio. Four seconds, I... four thirds. No win um, for him, unfortunately. But it is coming, you have to say, uh, for Di Gian Antonio. And it's easy to forget that this kid, he's, I mean, he's still 18. He's not 19 until uh, another couple of weeks from now. 10th of October, he'll turn 19. And this is still Jeez. only, he's still only like two thirds of the way through his second Grand Prix season. Um, Dijon Antonio, he's still younger than perhaps you'd think. 
um, and still relatively inexperienced. So this kid's only going to get better, and you know he's going to be one of the kids I next season up thinking I can win this World Championship next season with no John Mir in it and no Fanati either uh, in Moto3 next season. So along with Aaron Canet, Dijan Antonio and Martin are going to be eyeing up next season as a potential World Championship challenge for them next season, as will Anayat Bastianini, who, of course, um, has been notable for chasing um, the right bike in Moto3 because he's on the move next season as well. Um, but third place for him, a solid enough result, but this is one of the riders, unlike Dijon Antonio, who is very experienced in this class and still manages to find ways not to win Grand Prix, Dre. <laughs> he's so fast. He is so... On one lap, he's as fast as anyone in Moto3 I've ever seen. But in, 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 in race conditions, just not quite enough to win. And it must be infuriating at the moment having this go down where you know he's close. You know he's right there. Um, and he's and he's made a habit of this this season. Where again, the, the overall speed is 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 better than anybody in the class. But just that racecraft is not quite there to you know, to make the big difference, and it's really hurting him. And it, it, it's showing as 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 these week as these weekends go on that he's just not quite on that same level, and it's hurt him definitely. Yeah, he's had seventeen podiums in his Grand Prix career because this is his fourth season. Uh, in Moto3, and uh, in the last two seasons, he's been third in the championship in 2015. Cost would have been runner-up had he not um, dropped back behind Miguel Oliveira late in the season uh, when Oliveira took the fight to Danny Ken. And then he was runner-up last season, albeit a very distant runner-up to Brad Binder. Um, but he just hasn't made that next step up to become a regular winner and championship fight cause, fighter because he's only won two Grand Prix um, in his career. Um, and this is, as I say, towards the end of his fourth season. So we're still waiting for that last step up for Bastianini for him to become a real championship contender. Um, we're waiting for Jorge Martin to make that same step. And he's another rider, much like his teammate, who's still chasing a first Grand Prix win. And again, another of those races for Martin where he led for a long way and then ended up getting muscled out right at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right in there, right again. Just, just, just a, just a little bit of extra class for Amir is that was what's made the difference. And we mentioned that Amir's got another gear in him that just nobody else in this class has really got. Where other really talented guys just find that gear. Yeah, Martin needs to find that in in race trim, like not like in qualifying. He's 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 the best qualifier in the grid. Just in race trim, still lacking a little something. Mm, yeah, he is. Um, it's it's coming. You feel for Jorge Martin, but yeah, he's still. He's still chasing it because he, he had pole again, didn't he, at the weekend in, in Moto3, um, mm -hmm. where he, um, and it was another of, forgive me if you've heard this one before, another farcical finish to Moto3 qualifying um, as everyone tried to follow hey, everybody. Hey. Yeah, I know, it, you believe it, right? Um, but yeah, Jorge Martin, <laughs> it was a brilliant display actually from Martin because he hung back as long as he dared, um, let everyone else go out first and go out and get a lap in, and Jorge Martin was the last to go out in qualifying at the end of Saturday qualifying and literally took the across the finish line with one second to go before the checkered flag came out and started his final qualifying lap. He left it as late as possible to leave it to ensure that no one would follow him. Um, and he was, in fact, on a potential pole lap when he decked it halfway around um, his final qualifying lap, but he'd done enough anyway to take pole position because there'd been a pilot further up the road um, mm -hmm. where um, Gabby Rodrigo, I think it was, had a high... Oh, no, Adam Norodin had a high side and then took three riders down behind him. Um, yeah. which um, led to the inevitable calls for qualifying to be altered in Moto3. We remain to be seen whether that does indeed end up happening. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the uh, 
seventh pole of Jorge Martin's Moto3 season, and he is still chasing that first Grand Prix victory. Eight poles, if you include the one that he inherited in Mizano from Bastianini. How do you have eight poles and no wins? Come yeah. on, man. No wins. He's got a better hit rate than that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but he's, yeah, he's still chasing it, and he dropped a spot in the championship as well because his teammate went past him, uh, Dijan Antonio, with that result. Um, in the end. Um, so, John Mir, the winner, but there were stories further back because the top six were all Hondas. John Mir, Fabio Di Antonio, Enea Bastianini, Jorge Martin, Aaron Canet, and John McPhee. Seventh was the first of the KTMs in Marcos Ramirez. Again, stop me if you've heard that one before. Um, but right behind him, on the second of the KTMs, was Dennis Foggia, wild carding uh, for the Sky VR46 team. He is their junior VR46 Academy rider. And um, simply put, Dre, given how impressive he was on Sunday, you can see why this guy is dominating the Junior World Championship, can't you? The man is is fearless. I, I, I applaud his gumption. There was, a, there was a moment in the ground where he just completely dive-bombs the crap out of Joanne Mir, and I was like, whoa! <laughs> like, this kid's got gumption. Yeah. I'd like that. Um, yeah, Foggia looked like he'd been, he'd been riding there for three years already. Very... Very, very confident performance. I like that seeing him. I enjoyed watching him ride there. He looked like he belonged in the in the senior world championship. He looked very comfortable out there in the evening, as you say. Him leading, you know, him being in right in the mix right now in in obviously leading the junior championship is no coincidence. He's doing a fantastic job over there, and he's brought some of that form to the world series and. Isn't he confirmed to be riding for VR next year? Yeah, he is. He's going to be teammates to yes. Nicolo Bulliger next season. Yeah, um, once a watch, in, in the uh, Sky VR46 team where KTM will be hoping to make a comeback next year, um, having been thoroughly thrashed by Honda this year because they've only won the one race this year, KTM, and that was uh, through Mino at uh, Mugello. Mino, by the way, um, has been farmed out to the Aspar team, the Aspar team that has in recent years run a number of junior VR46 riders, most notably because Banyaya with some great success last year. Um, they're going to be running Mino next year and on a KTM um, in, in Moto3. But yeah, Foggia is going to be in that team. And um, as Julian Ryder said at the weekend, Foggia wildcarded, or should I say replaced, he was the first rider to replace Darren Binder when he got injured earlier in the year. He replaced him at Bruneau and finished in the points. Um, and when a rider, as Foggia's done and as Messia did at Austria when they come straight into the class and on their first time out they're straight on the pace and straight in the leading group that is when you take notice and realise that we're talking about special talents here um, oh yeah and, and it just it's again it's testament to Dorna and the, the, the system they put in place with the Junior World Championship and obviously they're hoping to do that with the Asia Talent Cup with the uh, Ripple Rookies and with the British Talent Cup of the We've got riders now, even at 14, 15, 16, when they come to Grand Prix, even at that young age, they're ready immediately. Um, and even when the likes of Joan Mir, and in recent years, we've seen Brad Binder move up as champion, Danny Kent move up as champion, Oliveira moved up, um, Vinales and Rins moving up, and so on moving up. Even when they do that, there are still extraordinarily good riders from the Junior World Championship and Red Bull rookies ready to step in. And, and step in as if you haven't really missed these guys moving up. Um, and Moto3, again, is going to be fantastic next season with the likes of Foggy moving up. Messiah is going to be a regular rider next season in the Junior World Chat, in the Moto3 class as well. It's going to be brilliant to watch next year um, in Moto3. Uh, Romano Fanati won't be a part of Moto3 next season, but uh, he will be in Moto2. But his championship hopes are almost completely gone now after he only finished 10th uh, the weekend in Aragon. Basically qualified back end of the top 10 and made a poor start and ended up, quite frankly, in the wrong group. 
Um, so by the time he got himself into the leading group, it was way too late, and he finished down in 10th. And here is the damage that it has done. The race result, Mir the winner from Dijan Antonio and Bastianini, with Martin, Canet and, Fanat and McPhee completing an all-Honda top six. Uh, with Ramirez, Foggia and Ertel on KTMs, 7th, 8th and 9th, and Fanati in 10th. Championship standings look like this. Joan Mir leads by 80 points from Romano Fanati, with just 100 left to play for. <laughs> A second or better in the race at Mategi in two weeks' time will clinch the title for Mir with three races to spare. And that is on the basis that Fanati is the winner. Um, anything but a win for Fanati and John Mir will only need to be on the rostrum. Uh, Aaron Canet is still in third in the championship. He's 18 points behind Fanati in third. Uh, with Jan Antonio going past Martin into fourth. John McPhee is sixth. A point ahead now of Ramirez in seventh. Mino and Bastianini are tied on points in eighth and ninth. And Philippe Ertel is 10th next round as i mentioned of all three classes is at mategi in japan two weeks from now Right, before we go, let's go through the news. And there's quite a bit of, all of, it, of it, so let's do it in a bit of rapid fire. Starting with BSB and the news that doesn't really surprise many of us when we think about it. It makes an awful lot of sense. JG Speedfit Kawasaki have named an unchanged rider pairing for 2017. There was talk earlier in the season that Leon Haslam would be moving back to World Superbikes with the Pichetti Kawasaki team, uh, having, of course, taken that bike to a podium finish as a wildcard at Donington earlier this year. Uh, but Dre, when you hear Leon Haslam explain the reasons for staying in BSB, they do make a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, Leon Haslam's not here for sixth place. He just isn't. And as you say, like, and as he said, I should say, like, in Worlds right now, there's only four bikes capable of winning at that level. The two Kawasaki's, the, the factory bikes, and the two factory Ducatis. And if Haslam's not on one of those, well, then what's the point? And... As it stands right now, those four seats are all locked up for next year. I'm pretty sure all four of them are actually literally confirmed for next season. So there is no chance for Haslam on, on that bike. And he doesn't want to be – he wants to be in a series where he wants to win. And World Superbikes is not that at the moment. So sadly for him, you know, he's, he's going to stay in BSB for another year. There's no World Superbike return for him. But I think that's the best place for him right now because he's done a great job mm. to enhance the profile of the British scene right now as opposed – to the um, you know to, to the to the scene in worlds right now, which is a bit of a gap between the top four to six and everybody else, really. Yeah, and who knows? Leon Hasler might well have the number one plate on his bike this time uh, next year in BSB because he leads that championship at the moment. We'll look ahead to the Assen. Uh, BSB action, which is this weekend. Um, before we go, um, he'll be partnered again by Luke Mossy. That team um, is unchanged, and um, without sounding too cliched about it, Dre, Luke Mossy will rightly feel he has some unfinished business in BSB next season with JG Speedfit. You'd think so. I mean, this was always going to be a year of what could have been for Luke Mossy because. Again, like there is so much um, no, dropped points that Mossy had to go through, sadly. I mean, he just just wasn't there for him this season. Again, through injury, through an uncompetitive Kawasaki on, on many occasions this season, just not quite having, you know, all the ducks lined up like that for Mossy to be ultimately successful. But again, we know he's showdown level capable. He, we know he's, he's, he's 
a race-winning level rider that could, that can win on many occasions, and they did this this past season. So, yeah, definitely a case of some unfinished business, and I look forward to seeing what he can do next year with a experience under his belt. Yeah, we mentioned uh, Pajetti Kawasaki and the ride that Leon Haslam has turned down. It appears likely now um, as to who is going to be filling that vacancy in World Superbikes next year. And uh, you'll be delighted to hear, and by you I mean you, Dre, um, that it's going to be filled by a world champion because uh, the Ginter's bandwagon is going to be riding back into World Superbikes next year. I consider this a promotion. Mm. Still with Ginter's. The Ginter's Homecoming Tour, Chapter 2, World Domination, again, on a Kawasaki that's not the factory. Damn it! Yeah, um, he, okay. He's got the rapid top rack Razgatioglu, more rapid than his name, as a teammate, which is not going to be no easy challenge for uh, Gintoli. Because remember last time he had a rapid rookie as his teammate by the name of Michael Vandermark? Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, that could be a problem. Yeah, only uh, the most naturally talented guy out there, according to Jonathan Ray. <laughs> <sighs> This could be a tough homecoming tour. Just, just, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, we'll have to wait and see how well, that goes. Serious, it's good to see this guy back on the world superbike. Yes, he should be in. He, he is world superbike. Well, he's a world champion. You don't, you don't win those things by chance. He's very good. And you know, just, just, just waiting for the right opportunity more than anything else. So yeah, this is definitely one where you know it's a good spot for him. The Kawasaki is a strong bike, no matter which way you slice it. Leon Haslam was able to win races as a world, uh, not win races, but um, certainly challenge for podiums as a wild card so there's no reason why he can't do the same in my opinion he's a you think he's of similar quality so look forward to seeing how that goes mm, yeah we will it'd be interesting that next season so long totally likely to partner rasgatioglu at pachetti kawasaki um next season on the uh satellite essentially kawasaki team um more three news that we uh, brought you a little bit earlier on when we covered the class uh grassini are also unchanged for next season jorge martin and fabio di gian antonio will be staying with the Grassini team next season in Moto3 aboard a pair of Hondas. So look out for those two next year, who are currently fourth and fifth in the championship. Moto2 news, because there's been quite a bit of that um, over the course of the last week, with spots being filled on the grid for next season. There will be a new constructor on the grid next season in the form of the Japanese NTS, um, who you might have noticed on the grid last weekend in Aragon with Stephen Odendahl. They are going to be partnering up with the RW Racing team, uh, the Dutch team, which uh, has been running on the grid uh, so far this season. Um, they're going to be running a two-rider team of Steven Odendahl, who currently rides an NTS in the Spanish Junior World, well, not the Junior World Championship, the European Championship, as it is in Moto2. Uh, Odendahl won that championship last season and clearly a class rider. And the American Joe Roberts, who's impressed us um, as mm -hmm. a stand-in for the AGR team. More on them in a second. Um, but it, we mentioned this before we went on air, Dre. It's almost like the almost like the rebirth of Moto2. And with Triumph coming on board as an engine manufacturer in a year's time, um, as a supplier to this class, it's almost as if Moto2 has been revitalized. Yeah, we, we were talking about this earlier this year. Moto2 seemed to have been falling by the wayside in terms of originality. And what this, this series was meant to be a showcase for chassis design, given that everything else is spec. Hmm. But as time has gone on, it had become a Calex-dominated series. And it seemed like at one point, the only way to win was on a Calex. After Mark Marquez went to MotoGP, Suter seemed to have faded as a chassis manufacturer. And a lot of these teams believe in bandwagons. It's why I think Interwetten has joined with, up with KTM. I know it's a Swiss thing as well, but... Um, you know, like Interwitten joining KTM, I think is no coincidence. I think mean, I think a big part of that is because they've seen what they can do as a factory. They think, hmm, maybe that can be the difference to beat 
you know, to beat Calix and beat the Mark VTS team that has been like the main headlining team in Moto2 for the last three or four seasons now. We're now going to have those six different chassis constructors on the grid next year in Moto2. That was that would have been, un been unheard of a couple of years ago. Absolutely, especially with with the amount of you know, just, just just the sheer amount of guys that, that they've got up there right now. This just fact that you know, it, like I think Cadex had twenty three runners a couple of seasons ago that was on their bikes. So as it was going right now, that you know, it was basically the oh, glorified spec series, and nobody else was really making any other chassis like Suter or Speed Up work. So. Yeah, I, I'm glad to see more manufacturers uh, are giving this a chance, and I'm glad we're going to see some more innovation in the class. I hope it leads to brighter things. Mm, it will. We'll have Calix, KTM, Suter, Speed Up, Tech 3, of course, with uh, their Mistral, and indeed MTS on the grid next season. So, uh, yeah, Moto 2 um, coming on strong, and of course, as I mentioned, Triumph on board in 2019 as engine suppliers as well. Um, so the class is going through something of a renaissance at the moment. Um, and mentioning one of those different manufacturers, Speedup have confirmed their rider lineup for next season. Now, we've known for a while that Danny Kent will be riding for them. Um, he'll be partnered by Fabio Quartararo, who is one of the other rookies um, who's done a solid job this season. We've talked a lot about Bagnaia, we've talked a lot about Binder, and indeed Navarro in recent races as he's become a regular top six, top eight finisher. But Quartararo's done a solid job as well, given that he's still only 18 years of age. Uh, and he'll be partners to Danny Kent at Speed Up next season. Dre, that's, I'm trying to think of the right word, an intriguing rider pairing. Yeah, that is, for me, a big frigging gamble. I mean, you've got Danny Kent, who, for lack, you know, for I'll be nice here and say inconsistent in, in, in Moto2 and uh, in, um, since, since, he's, since his return. And let's be honest, not the best professional in the world. And Fabio Quattararo, who has been okay in his Moto2 season, maybe, but has hardly set the world alight for Pons. And I think that's part no, of again, I think we forget how young Fabio is. He's still only 18. Yeah, because it's crazy. He's got, he's got 18 goals, so he's got all that experience as well, where he's he's been a Grand Prix motorcycle-level rider since he was 15. Yeah, so, came in as, with all that fanfare as the dominant junior world champion. Yeah, the next Mark Marquez, he was being held at already, and it's just not worked out for him so far. This should, in theory, be a better fit for him in this class, given that the bikes are bigger, and he's actually quite a big lad for 19. But it's not worked out for him at Pons, and I think that's why Pons has cleared the decks for next season by bringing in Hector Barbara. But yeah, Fabio's not really worked out in that sense. Um, so speed up a gamble in here on two talented but ultimately unproven guys at this level so uh, th there seems to be a bit of a gamble here as to how they're playing out on this one we'll have to see uh, and see how it goes yeah they will because they right from the start of, of moto2's history um that speed up has only ever really worked in the right circumstances with the right rider um and they've only found two of those in its history andre Inone back in the very early years of moto2 where he'd have those occasional days where he'd either he'd either be midfield or he'd win by a fortnight um mm -hmm. and you know he'd have those days in equal measure um and sam lowes who of course won grand prix on that speed up um later um well later in the decade but just before he became a MotoGP rider um but yeah. other than that on in very other, very various other rider combinations, it's not really amounted to much. I mean, Simone Corsi's done a solid job on it this season. I mean, he's top ten in the championship at the moment. Corsi, he's eighth in the championship, but he's not had a rostrum all year. He's done that through consistency of point scoring um, more than anything else. Um, so, uh, speed up seemed to 
I don't know. They seem to sort of design a bike and hope they can just put the right rider on it who will just make it work rather than make the bike better. Um, and let's hope next season that with Kent and Quattararo on board that, well, for their sake, hopefully they've found that right rider that will just suit that bike as, as Sam Lowe's did and as Yinone did. Um, because so far this season, they've flattered to deceive, I think, speed up in, in, in Moto2. Yes. Um, I think that's the best way of describing it. Um, we mentioned a moment ago, sticking with Moto2, um, the uh, Joe Roberts, who's um, moving to the NTS-backed uh, I, I, the RW team for next season, if I can uh, find the right way, a name for the team. Um, but we won't see Joe Roberts again for the rest of this season, unfortunately. <laughs> the reason for that is because AGR, who he currently rides for, have gone bust. Um, and this is a team, Dre, that has been sort of referred to as the Skint team in Moto2 and Moto3 for the last couple of years, back when Jonas Folger rode for the team. And it was noticeable, that bike, about how little sponsorship was on it. And unfortunately, um, that lack of sponsorship and lack of funding has finally caught up with them. Indeed, yeah, you're absolutely right. AGR did have that knack of being labelled as, as, as the team with the lack of lack of money, lack of sponsors. But they had, you know, a great, great talent in the owners of Olga inside of them, and that often was what carried them through. And without that, your bike's not going to be on TV as much. You're not going to have as much airtime, and sadly, you're just going to miss out really on 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 that sort of TV marketing money. And if if you if you're middle of the road, you're not going to get those opportunities that guys like Mark VDS do, or any other of these big teams that are often buddying up together to, to sponsors, you know, to to have these great big teams in there. I mean, I remember Julian Ryder saying at one point that Mark VDS, for example, was basically a MotoGP team in sheep's clothing when they were dominating Moto2 Rabat and Calio a few years back. So um, now. For, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's sad, and I hope the guys in the team can can find other work because I don't want to see any other team, you know, you know, collapse essentially like this, like AGR has done. I can't say I'm surprised, but it, it's still saddening to see a team collapse like that. And you know, a, a very talented rider like Joe Roberts has had, you know, opportunities to to perform on said bike, and he's done a great job with what he's been given so far. And you know, I'm glad he's fallen up from this. He's got an opportunity to, you know, ride a, a new chassis. And who knows? That, that could be great for him. It could be an, a, a career-defining move for him. But right now, yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's not a good sign. Yeah, it's a shame, of course, because the the AGR team also runs Maria Herrera in Moto3, who's had her injury problems recently. Um, but we won't see her for the rest of the season either, unless she finds a ride elsewhere. Um, of course, she had her her challenges to overcome getting on the grid this season financially because she's been searching for a budget to get herself onto the grid in recent years anyway. Um, and the, the way it looks to me, um, I know this is easy speaking with the benefit of hindsight, but of course this team did take, I think, a bit of a gamble on Yoni Hernandez this year uh, in Moto2. And of course he would have yeah. no doubt brought a bit of financial backing with him um, from Colombia. And I think once that gamble backfired, the, the team were always on the back foot from there to try and you know, find the funding to keep going for this season. And unfortunately... Um, they've not been able to keep going beyond Aragon. We won't be seeing them for the rest of the season. Um, one final piece of Moto2 news, and it again surrounds next year. Um, Stefano Manzi will be staying on the grid. I know you're all gonna absolutely delighted about that. Um, huh? Manzi, who um, usually only good for a good result at Silverstone and not much else um, over the course of the season, although he did score a point last weekend at Aragon. He has signed for the forward team. 
Um, although he'll be less forward than backwards next year, um, having lost Luca Marini and Lorenzo Baldassari. Yeah, keep that. You can keep that one for next week. Um, but uh, for Stefano Manzi, uh, was joined that team for next year, um, which answers the question that we were kind of asking last week. Of, well, are forwards sticking around then? Now they've lost both their riders for next year. Well, they are. They, they are sticking around and they've signed Stefano Manzi um, for next year. Um, now into the world superbike paddock, uh, and we will use this as a nice way of um, bridging into uh, our preview of this weekend's action. Because of course, world superbikes are at Magnicor this weekend in France. World Supersport news um, that the GRT Yamaha have stuck with the same rider pairing for next year. They are keeping both Lucas Mahias and Federico Caracasulo in World Supersport next season. And um, put simply, Dre. Uh, this weekend, I think, is the biggest weekend of Lucas Mahias' racing career. Home soil at Magni Core, a circuit that he won on last year in the Super Stock 1000 class. And simply put, he needs another win this year too. Yeah, he probably does. Because, um, I mean, he's not going to get a better chance than this home Grand Prix. Track he knows very well. Track he's been strong at in the past. It was probably the, the race um, last year that really introduced us to Lucas Mahias as a talent. Um, so, and he, he now badly needs a win against Keenan to at least take the title to Qatar and make it interesting on the way in because Keenan, we all know, he's Keenan Safoglu, he is the god of 600cc racing and you know he's 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 pulled himself into this position now where he leads the championship and Mahias has been clinging on to dear life ever since and he needs he needs to start getting these wins against Keenan and now it really is the time it's, it's crunch time so he needs to start winning these big ones now yeah it's going to be a fascinating race to watch in World Super Sport this weekend as I say as Dre mentioned Mahias who goes well around Magni Court with the home crowd behind him and um, we hope there is a big crowd that turns out to watch World Super this, this weekend we know um, from previous experience at Le Mans this year in MotoGP, the French, when they get behind their home rider, it makes for a fantastic atmosphere. So let's hope there's a chance of Lucas this weekend for Lucas Mahias if he can uh, put one over on Safoglu um, in the Moto in the uh, World Super Sport race. And uh, of course, there will be two races to go following this in the Moto in the World Super Sport Championship uh, with Jerez to come and then Qatar. Um, so let's see if Mahias can uh, regain the championship lead from Safoglu uh, this weekend. Of course, we have the World Super Sport 300 class as well. They have just two races to go um, with the uh, fact that they don't go to Qatar for the final round. So in theory, Alfonso Coppola could become the first ever World Super Sport 300 champion this weekend. Um, but it would take a, a freakish set of results given that he's only got a one-point lead uh, over Mark Garcia. Um, but we'll look forward to seeing how that class pays out as well at Magnicol this weekend. But all eyes really... <laughs> will be on the World Super Bike Class because, Dre, a victory in race one this weekend will crown Jonathan Ray as the first ever three times consecutive World Super Bike Champion. Um, the fat lady's right about ready to sing. She's, she's warming up the vocal cords. She's, she's, she's sprayed the water out down the throat. It's coming any second. It, it, it could be any time now. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This, this like Jonathan Ray, all he has to do really is just do exactly what he normally does. And he should have absolutely no problem at all bringing home the 30 points required over the weekend in either race to, uh, to, to guarantee what would be another dominant reign of terror for Jonathan Ray and World Superbikes and he seems to be just, just getting better and better with every year and you know, the qualifying game as he stepped up has been fantastic this year as well. He's just found new ways to take to take points out of people 
on a ridiculous level. And yeah, it's surely, surely it's going to be the one this time round. Yeah, it's um, coronation time uh, for Jonathan Ray. Yeah. They'll, be, they'll be preparing the uh, the video montages for him. They'll have the celebratory T-shirts ready on the outside of the Adelaide Herb yeah. and the Magnico. Like fellas, it's time. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> Um, and yeah, he needs he needs thirty points from well from the next six races in theory, but most likely this weekend. Um, thirty points needed, a thirty point swing essentially. If he wins race one, that would then deprive Sykes of five potential points and would win Jonathan Ray the world title in race one on Saturday at Magnico. So potentially, uh, you might have just seen Jonathan Ray win the world championship as you listen to this yeah, show. By the time this goes out, yeah. yeah so um, <laughs> if so, congratulations, Johnny, uh, on your third world title. We'll talk about you in more detail on next week's show. Um, if not commiserations, yeah. Chaz Davis was such a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Chaz, it's it's Tom that needs. It. I think Tom's the only one in really mathematical contention now, isn't he? Because because of Chaz's right. crash in race two, Tom's still second point. in the points. Um, but yeah, Tom, we don't even know if he's going to be uh, having taken part in that race because, of course, he's got his injury problems to overcome. Um, and we don't quite yo know at this stage as we record this on the Thursday night of uh, September the 28th if Tom Sykes was even going to be fit enough to race this weekend um, given the injuries that ruled him out at Portimao a couple of weeks ago that is all to come this weekend uh, one rider change uh, to tell you about in, in World Superbikes because Stefan Bradl um, injured himself and missed race 2 at Portimao when he knackered his wrist he's been replaced by the rider who replaced Nicky Hayden um, at Laguna Seca earlier this season <laughs> Jake Gagne, the uh, young American, will be partnering Davide Giuliano, who's back in uh, a Rebel Honda. Uh, Takumi Takahashi's back in that seat for Jerez um, because there is another post-race weekend test at that weekend, so they want Takahashi, the test rider, on board that weekend. Um, there isn't one at Magni Corps, so Giuliano is back in the seat. Um, kind of how the Mountie have fallen, unfortunately, for Rebel Honda, who started the season with Hayden and Bradle, a new Fireblade, and a ton of excitement with Red Bull on board, and they're now heading to Magni Corps with uh, Jake Gagne and Davide Giuliano, who, no disrespect, are not a frontline World Superbike rider pairing um, for yeah. that team. Uh, so, um, yeah, a tough weekend in store for them once again. But as I say, all eyes on uh, the Tenkate team's former rider, Jonathan Ray, as he looks to become the first ever rider to win three consecutive World Superbike titles. It is all over, bar the shouting. Um, British Superbikes, that title can't be decided this weekend. The showdown format has seen to that. Um, but um, it's a key weekend in terms of setting up the final round and, and really sort of establishing what kind of playing field we're going to have for that triple-header decider at Brands Hatch in October. Um, Leon Haslam with a, as near as makes no difference, a race worth of points in his pocket over Josh Brooks, Shaky Byrne and Jake Dixon. Um, and with heavy rain scheduled or forecast based on the uh, weather forecast that I've been looking at in the last 24 hours, Dre, um, this is going to be a key weekend, isn't it? Simply put, Dixon, Byrne, and Brooks have all got to make inroads so they can head to Brands with a real chance. Rule number one here, folks. Keep your bikes upright at all times, gentlemen. Whatever you do, do not bid it now, or else it could be your final death bell for you winning the showdown format, yeah? Like, like they, they have to keep the bikes upright. We saw what happened at Silverstone, um, where pretty much three-quarters of the field hit the deck uh, at least once during that race. And, and the guy the guy that kept it up and, you know, won the race in the showdown spot was Jake Dixon. And... That could be that could be what gets him back into the title race because Haslam did not go well in the wet. He's had incidents in the wet race where, he, where he's lost the bike from underneath him during those changeable sort of conditions sorts of races. He struggled with that's concerned, and uh, yeah, this is going to be critical for him. So again, keep your bike upright. Don't take too many chances because there's still five races left and. 
hey, if Aston's he- heavy rain, then it's heavy rain. But, you know, there's three races at, at Brand still to go to as well. So it's not going to be the end of the world if anybody's even a race back by the time we get to Brands, especially given the way this season's gone. Yeah, I mean, the, the forecast has, has changed ever so slightly. There's now more chance of a dry Sunday, but it's still expected to be very wet on Saturday um, and a strong, oh. strong chance of rain on Friday as well. So we could have, at the very least, a mixed-up grid um, for the first of the two races on Sunday. And as I mentioned, um, it's a key one for Brooks, uh, for Burn and for Dixon because Leon Haslam pretty much knows. I mean, he course he wants to put himself in a stronger position as possible. In many ways, there's less pressure on Haslam because he knows with a 22-point lead heading into this weekend, even if he has a bad Aston, he's still going to go to Brands for the triple header with a real chance of winning the championship. Whereas a bad, week, a bad weekend for either Burn, Dixon, or Brooks and its curtains. Indeed, and, and Haslam and Kawasaki in general has gone well around Brands this season. Mossy had taken the double on the Indy layout. Earlier this season, Haslam's gone strong at the, on, on, on around here. I think he was second place on both occasions there, so they they're solid around around Brand. Let's so, not forget that like, Haslam doubled Aston last year. Ex- yeah, and Haslam doubled up. So if there's even one dry race, Haslam's got a fantastic chance to put to put one nail in the coffin with his showdown format, especially because Brands is I think it could be open season for all as far as we know. So yeah, the way it is right now, uh, whew, could be very interesting. But Haslam can put one hand on the trophy with at least one race win this weekend. Yeah, we look forward to seeing how it plays out. Two British Superbike races and two World Superbike races this weekend where we are likely to see the crowning of the World Superbike champion. Um, whether that happens or not, whatever happens at Assen and at Magni Court, we'll be back this time next week to review it on episode 33 uh, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Uh, given that it's episode 33, who knows if we're going to get a Marco Melandri win to talk about, um, given that he rides with that number. And, of course, last time we saw him on a World Superbike Magni Core, he had us all talking um, with his uh, with his lack of or his uh, choosy uh, following of team orders. Um, yes. Back on that fateful weekend in 2014, who knows what we're going to have to talk about this time next week. We'll also have episode 106 of Motorsport 101, Dre. And uh, as of right now, we don't quite know whether we'll be hearing you on it, but whoever we hear talking... They'll be talking all about the final Malaysian Grand Prix um, on four wheels, at least, um, at Sepang this weekend. And uh, will we still have a Formula One championship alive when they when we reconvene next week? I guess you're hoping so. Yeah, I hope so. Yes. I, 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 I'd, I'd like to see that. No guarantees. I mean, if Lewis Hamilton wins, he'll have one hand on the title, given it will be out of Seb's hands. Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> who, by the way, in terms of giving this is a bike show, has put his name on an MV Augusta superbike. Like that's what I put on Twitter earlier. Yes, the MV Augusta Lewis Hamilton edition of the F of the F4 MV Augusta superbike, which I said jokingly on Twitter. Guaranteed to blow up in key situations. Brackets. Ask Leon Camier. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm just like, Lewis, are you sure you want to put your name on that one? As much as it's a very beautiful looking bike, because Envy only design beautiful looking bikes, but, you know, Lewis. But, uh, you know, hopefully it will spur him on to. Actually, hopefully, hopefully it won't spur him on to victory <laughs> yeah. at Malaysia this weekend. Yeah, because um, yeah, so Lewis Hamilton's got uh, painful memories of um, his machinery blowing up at the worst possible moment in Sepang. Um, yes. So um, insert team radio here. Um, so uh, so yeah, that is uh, that is all to come this weekend. A circuit that, as you mentioned on this week's podcast, Ray, pretty much it's got as good a success rate as any circuit in the world for producing a good Formula One race. It does, including the 2001 race, which is now available to watch in full on the F1 YouTube channel for the next 16 or so days. Yeah, race car Twitter delivered for us on that one. 
Yes, well done, race car Twitter, for getting 2001 the nominated vote because that race was bonkers. Well, at least certainly the first half of it. Um, so uh, with the, yeah, well Murray Walker commentary too. Um, yes, on, on the Formula One YouTube yeah. channel. So um, yeah, watch that while you still can because it's only available for I believe a couple of weeks. So uh, yeah, get yourself over there and uh, and watch that if you haven't seen that race and you only um, sort of came to listen to motorsport in recent years. Um, it's well worth an hour and a half of your time because it is an absolute thriller um, in Malaysia, um, even if it does end up with a result that most of you would have expected at the start. Um, but it's a hell of a lot of fun getting there, so go ahead and watch that now. As I mentioned, this time next week, episode 106, looking back on the final Malaysian Grand Prix um, in Formula 1 history, for now at least, um, and everything else that goes on in the motorsport world um, over the last seven days. We'll reconvene next week for episode 33 of Bike Live. Um, between now and then, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we're at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and get yourself early access um, to episode 106 of Motorspot 101 and episode 33 of Bike Live next week. Patreon.com forward slash Motorspot 101. And for all the information on all the above, it's motorsport101.net. My thanks to Andre Harrison for joining me once again this week. And my thanks to all of you for listening here on Bike Live. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. And will we have a brand new World Superbike champion to talk about? We'll see you next week. Until then, it's bye-bye.